Hi, it's Bob from Royal Spa. Soaking in a hot tub full of Epsom salts is the absolute best way to minimize everyday aches and pains. And we know all about Epsom salts at Royal Spa. Royal Spa hot tubs are the only hot tubs on the market that can safely and effectively use Epsom salts. Made right here in Indiana, Royal Spa hot tubs are the highest quality hot tubs on the market. Visit any one of our three Indianapolis locations or visit royalspa.com. Ah, Royal Spa. I feel like a captain or a pastor or a guide today. And the reason I feel that way, Jimmy Cook, James Boyd, Nathaniel Finch behind the ones and twos, is we have just emerged from the darkness and the light has returned. <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, brothers and sisters of the Fan Midday Show. And the reason I feel that way is because, as our producer extraordinaire Nathaniel Finch reminded us as we got on the air, not that we needed reminding, we got through the darkest day of the sports calendar yesterday. It is behind us. Well done. Applause all around. <laughs> there was still some summer league action. If you were really just craving sports yesterday in some capacity, you still had some Wimbledon action this morning. And of course, you could dig all the way to the depths of different soccer conference leagues that I had no idea what was really going on. Uh, and why I say I didn't know what was going on, my extent of research there was I was looking for things to put in the plays of the day yesterday. And I decided I wasn't going to touch the soccer teams across the pond in the league I knew nothing about. Instead, we went with Wimbledon. <laughs> and what happened was, regrettably, I was punked by DraftKings, which is you have these placeholder times of when matches are going to take place. And it appeared to me that the women's final was going to be this morning. Apparently it was not this morning. It is actually tomorrow. But the men's semifinal was actually today. And Novak Djokovic takes care of business. So that parlay that I'm sure everybody was on the edge of their seats about yesterday, James... Has one leg down, not two legs, so we'll have to update you on Monday. For you, though, my friend, you're in vacation mode as well because you have some time off here. When vacation mode crosses with darkest day of the sports calendar, <laughs> what goes on in the life of one James Boyd? I'm still locked into Game of Thrones. Nice. Season five right now. I was up way too late last night watching it, but that's what you do when you're on vacation, right? You enjoy those things. Didn't have to do too much other than that. I mean, I'm enjoying the time off, obviously, because I know as soon as the 25th rolls around and they report for training camp, and then the 26th happens when we report for training camp as media members, we won't stop until January. And so I'm excited for it, but obviously not rushing it because I'm enjoying this piece that I have in my life right now. My day, I don't want to have a day off, but my day clear of sports was I'm going to go see the new Mission Impossible movie tonight. And so the last couple of weeks, I have been rewatching some of those. Just saw the most recent one last night on a rewatch. So I feel you. It was another, another late night in the cookhouse as well. But again, I would have been devoting my time to West Coast baseball anyway had it been there. So I would have been up regardless. <laughs> but it brings us to now, again, I joke about the light being on the horizon and back with us. There is nothing sweeter than going through any type of those like one or two days on the calendar year where there's no major sports going on. And then if you're into just following sports or more specifically if you're into the gambling side of things, which I know in this room it's just me and Nathaniel, but James pays attention to it because that crossover between sports media and sports betting is yeah. just natural at this point in time. Nothing like seeing a clean slate alliance for a sport <laughs> that you've been just longing to be back. And even though it wasn't like a full nine months, like off season to regular season, right. it's just the all-star break. 
Man, it's great to have baseball back. <laughs> I mean, I can't blame you. It's been an exciting season, obviously. And I think that there's been, and we've seen it in the NBA as well, you're saying some of these new names pop up, new guys, and you can always get excited about that, right? Mm-hmm. No doubt. I mean, you, you can always start to feel more towards what the second half of the baseball season is going to look like. We're going to get into that a little bit next week. It's most pertinent from a local angle. And by local angle, we always talk about how from a baseball standpoint, Indiana is very much a melting pot of MLB fans because you have a little bit of everything. You have Reds fans, you have Cardinals fans, Cubs fans, White Sox fans, Guardians fans, and then you have folks like me. Yankees fans. Oh, There's some Red goodness. Sox fans too. The Dodgers fans. It is very much a melting pot, but again, the majority of what people care about locally on the baseball angle is the Reds. For the first time in a long time after the All-Star break, this is a team that could legitimately and would today if the season ended, be a playoff team. And the trade deadline is about two or three weeks away. I think August 1st is the actual deadline. So we'll get into that a little bit more next week. This week is really, or this Friday really today, is an opportunity to have one final bow and one final wrap on the moves the Pacers have made in the offseason, as well as all the other drama that is surrounding the NBA, that Damian Lillard trade has not yet happened, that James Harden trade has not yet happened. And the more you try to look for information on this from the very top of the sport, Adrian Wojnarowski, Shams Charania, it is a game of chess right now or a game of poker between players and front office executives that are going to see who blinks first. And we've talked about it a lot with the Jonathan Taylor conversations the last couple of days, James, about how in the NFL, as we all know, and maybe the casual fan doesn't, but they more than likely do because it's always in our face, it is dictated by what the teams want to do with the players. It's very rarely dictated by what the player wants the team to do. Exceptions to that are Aaron Rodgers forcing his way out of Green Bay and getting up or ending up on the team he wanted to be on right Aaron Rodgers has all this loyalty built up with the Packers he wins a Super Bowl there and in a similar way even though Dame doesn't have the same hardware had those years of loyalty wants to be rewarded had you told me start of the year January 1st that those moves were going to happen I would have thought Damian Lillard would have been the most likely and easiest to move because that's the type of league the NBA is it's a player dominated league and I wouldn't think that you would have a team like the Packers even though they were able to get a nice return be as kind and be as player-friendly as they were. It appears identities have been swapped because the Trailblazers <laughs> are in this mode of, okay, we're going to play hardball. It's become a war. It's become a mess. It has become the bad breakup that we thought it would. As you look at the NBA landscape right now, we're going to cover a lot of ground in this first segment, but that Jonathan Taylor aspect is, sorry, the NFL is team-friendly. It's not often player-friendly, particularly with the tag. How surprised are you to see all this unfold in Portland, where it appears another final grasp here, much like the Nets did with Kevin Durant last season, we're seeing a second consecutive offseason where a team has a disgruntled superstar and they're not willing to bend the knee right away to give you a little Game of Thrones love there. I do like the Game You're of welcome. Thrones reference You're right welcome. there. You're welcome. Great show, by the way. I mm-hmm. feel like my jaw is on the floor yep. at the end of every episode. Yep. So. You know, kudos to HBO because it's been amazing so far, or Max rather. But now I do think, getting back to the subject at hand, I was a bit shocked that it hasn't moved along quicker and maybe it's just a response from Portland because it is a player's league, like you said. However, I'm not mad at either side. No, I'm not either. You know, but I understand. I do think that in this case, Portland is walking a fine line because. It's all about relationships and reputation, right? So 
you just wonder, can they play hardball with Dame and then down the line entice other stars to still come there? Because if other players feel like, well, you, the greatest player, arguably the greatest player in franchise history, I would say that Bill Walton probably is the best ever and you know, don't want to disrespect Clyde Drexler as well. But he's in that conversation, Damian Lillard. Yeah. But if you don't do right by him, would that affect you down the line? What are the optics of that? But at the same time, it's like you can't just come out, even if you just tell us internally, hey, I want to go to Miami. But to come out and basically say that or have your agent saying that and calling other teams, that tanks the trade value so much. Because now Miami is like, why are we going to give up a bunch of stuff when we don't have to because the only team that's going to play for is us? And then the other teams are going to be like, well, why throw in anything if he's not going to come here or if he's going to be a disgruntled superstar that – May not report. Now, I don't believe that at all. I think that he would show up for a camp and be there ready to play no matter what team he joins. But I am a bit surprised that, again, we saw the Aaron Rodgers deal kind of go through. But then at the same time, it is similar in a sense that the Aaron Rodgers thing took a while. Because remember he came out and said, mm-hmm. like, I'm going to be a Jet. But everyone was like, you're not a free agent. How does this work? <laughs> and so we had to wait, 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 wait. And I believe it was Trey Wingo who finally, like, broke it yeah. that this is going to happen this is what and I don't know if it was the details but he was the one that broke the story yeah maybe we get a similar resolution with Damien but it's still such a tough situation for me to gauge because I just don't know how I don't know how Portland really moves forward I don't know the reason that this is prevalent here, and I know that most of you may be thinking, well, this is a market that doesn't tie to us locally here. What's what's to be gained or why does it matter to us? There are a lot of parallels with what Portland is going through with what the Pacers have had to go through in the past. The main difference, of course, is that at least until this war of words publicly, the Damian Lillard and the Portland Trailblazers have had against one another in the media very strong, very high-level, great relationship. You saw similar fallout, similar disgruntlement if you turn the clocks back, what, six, seven years when Paul George forced his way out of Indiana and eventually wound up in Oklahoma City and then ultimately finds his way eventually after the Pacers trade to be a Clipper. But that was hard work and just a very strenuous exercise by the Pacers front office to be able to get the return that they wound up getting. And whether you like it or not, in terms of years removed now, was that trade beneficial for the franchise? At a minimum, even though the initial return, the pieces that you got back, being Victor Lodipo, being DeMontis Sabonis, didn't pan out here, the moves that made, the moves that were made after that, most importantly, the trade of DeMontis Sabonis led to the Pacers now having Tyrese Halliburton. If you go back, and there, there's some great charts. I believe our friend Alex Golden has main one. I think Tony East might have as well. But there's charts that kind of map out where those pieces were, where they started from the Paul George trade to where they are now. And people forget this because of Damian Lillard, but Portland big picture NBA is a small market team. Yes. Like they 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 are they are a small market franchise by definition just like the Pacers are. And just like the Pacers you're having to sell your organization when you're playing free agency and more often than not 
where you're going to have your biggest success from a we're going to build a contender standpoint is going to be through the draft or through trades. Thankfully for the Pacers, the trading portion of that in terms of needing to press a full reset button is behind them. That's not currently in their cards. There's no, we need to move this star, we need to move this player right now because he doesn't want to be here. It appears Indiana has gotten out of that dark area the last couple of years and are now at a point where it's a stable, healthy moment in the franchise's history. Things are rainbows and butterflies until the season starts, and then we find out if the rebuilding time is over. Portland is very much in the infancy with that, James. They're trying to figure out, to your point, and why they might wait longer before they trade Damian Lillard, is they want to have a solid foundation in place in Portland that they can build around. Absolutely, but I think that they addressed that foundation pretty significantly by drafting Scoot Henderson. Indeed, indeed. And so I just imagine Damian Lillard being like, you didn't trade the number three pick for a potential all-star caliber teammate, someone who could help me win now, and that probably was the first sign that they were moving on from him. I know the trade demand came out a few days later, but that was basically it. They feel like they got a replacement yeah. for their franchise player and someone who, I mean, up until – a few weeks before the draft and obviously draft night, he was looked at as the number two guy in the class. You know, behind Victor Wimanyamba, you can debate who's better, him or Brandon Miller, or who should have been picked. But the bottom line is they chose a guard to replace the all-time great guard that's going to be out the door. So that's the start of the foundation. But like you said, you just wonder where they go from here. And at the forefront of their minds, it has to be we need to be getting back draft capital and young pieces for Damian Lillard. We don't like they don't want guys that are older unless they're on expiring contracts. Right. It's great cap space and, and flexibility. So it's gonna be some lean years in Portland because up until recently with Damian Lillard, they really hadn't gone through any bad seasons. They just were never really good enough to get you there, which is part of the reason why. They're in this mess now. Hmm. They should have broken this up, quite honestly. Even if they wanted to build around Damian Lillard, I think they held on to C.J. McConnell too long. I mean, not C.J. McCollum. McCollum. Yep, C.J. Yep. McCollum, I'm yep. sorry. <laughs> Get my yep. names mixed I knew you up. Met. Yes, yep. but C.J., not T.J. I think they held on to him too long, to be honest, oh. and it kind of ruined them. And again, with Damian Lillard, to build around a small guard and win a championship, you need a lot of big wing players that they just haven't really had outside of Jeremy Grant, who they signed a little too late, in my opinion. Now, they extended him, but he's going to be their centerpiece going forward along with Scoot Henderson. But you have to at least go out there and try to get the best haul that you can. Lillard does not have a no-trade clause. Nope. And if you don't have that, a team should not operate as if you do. I feel like that's negative to the team. And there's a difference between, because people talk about, well, you know, the hard stance in this from an ownership standpoint is, all right, Dame, do what you want. If you want to not show up, financial penalties are going to be involved, but we're going to operate with you as a trailblazer with us shopping for the best offer as long as it takes. And you saw Brooklyn go through that exercise last season with Kevin Durant. It just becomes at a point where there's a difference between being blindly loyal to a player for no reason, which is, let's just say for the sake of argument, making a deal with Miami that is not beneficial to the franchise versus if there's a good package from Miami and maybe a third team that sees you getting three, maybe four first round picks. 
that's fine. You're still benefiting the team. You're not you're not acquiescing to the player. You are it's it's a happy medium where both sides come away with a result that they were hoping for. But if you're Portland, you're not doing that just for the sake of the player. You're doing it because the return is what you want, which is young draft capital to be able to build around Scoot and start this next process of your rebuild. And for me, James, I don't know about you, but I wouldn't view I don't I'm not gonna view Portland or Dame, at least to this point. Who knows what, what else the other sides are gonna say. But if if he gets traded today, I'm not going to view Portland or Damian Lillard any worse than I would have before. You talk about the fear, which is very real, of maybe hurting the image of the franchise. I don't think we're at that point yet. Yeah, no, it would have to be them sending him to somewhere like where he has no chance of winning. Yeah, That would be really bad. And obviously a team who isn't going to win wouldn't have much incentive to go get Lillard because you're not going to win if he's the only guy you have. Yep. But I saw some potential teams, and it's like, oh, the Spurs might be interested, but why? You have Victor Wimanyamba just build around him. Why bring in another player that's going to take up so much cap space and um, room on your roster, not only from a financial standpoint, but from a play standpoint? The focal point has to be Victor Wimbanyama. So, to me, everything will be fine or at least respectable, even if he doesn't end up in Miami, as long as they don't send him to a team where he doesn't have a chance. Like, if they work out a trade and he goes to Philadelphia, he can't be, like, completely disgruntled that he's playing with Joel Embiid. There's worse players to team up with in the NBA. So that's my whole thing. Just don't send them somewhere like Washington, for example. Kyle Kuzma's out there, though. Championship. <laughs> Championship 2024. <laughs> I've seen that Harden, or I've seen that 76ers mock-up of a trade. Is that, I, I haven't, I've just seen the, the headlines for it. Is that a world where Harden and Lillard and Embiid are on the same team? No. Or is that a world where it's Lillard and Embiid? Lillard and Embiid okay. and Harden would be moved out to create the space for sure. Lillard. Okay. And then even, I believe, Sam Emick from our company, The Athletic, reported that James Harden is like determined to go to the Clippers. And so what, what would that mean as far as him, PG, and Kawhi Leonard, who those two are really good players when they're healthy, but they can never stay healthy. And that's just the honest truth. And Jerry West told them that on the Paul George podcast. And I was like, wow, like got the logo calling out. And, and he wasn't even doing it in a rude way. He was just saying that it's unfortunate. So the league is so different. I believe I saw something on Twitter the other day from one of our, our athletic writers on the NBA staff where it's like, you know, if you look at NBA rosters from the 2018-19 season to now, only a handful of them even have like more than four players from yeah. that team. So there's so much movement. And that will continue this offseason, but again, with Dame in particular, it's not a terrible thing if he doesn't end up in Miami. It's actually pretty reasonable given that they have to weigh all of their options. And if he was going to want this leverage, he should have had the foresight to ask for a no-trade clause like Bradley Beal did. Or, which I get it, the money's hard to turn down, and oh, in yeah. hindsight, if he gets That's traded, true. he's going to... You know, if he ends up getting traded, he's still going to have the money on that contract. So it's a win-win for him, assuming, like you mentioned, it's to a contender. But that was always my biggest argument with it was I never saw them legitimately contending for a Larry O'Brien trophy even before he signed the extension. But it was always Dame's the most loyal player in the game and, and Dame really loves Portland and the ring doesn't necessarily matter to him. 
and I don't blame him for maybe having second thoughts or maybe that was not true because he didn't necessarily come out and say that like I don't want to win a championship but he did say he wanted to be in Portland and how much it mattered yeah, to I him mean, he said it himself Jimmy that he actually there's more important things in life yeah. than winning a championship these are his words yeah. that he said out of his own mouth and so that's part of it but I think when you play at that high of a level for so long there has to be some part of him that maybe has clicked now where you're like, I don't want to look back and say I never really had a shot at it. Right. Because, again, when I talk about Charles Barkley, Allen Iverson, Patrick Ewing, Reggie Miller, they've been to the finals. They at least were on that stage and had a shot. Yeah. To not ever get to the finals is a very hard pill to swallow. And I think that's a harder pill to swallow than to join a team where you might have a legit chance to get there. And if you bow out in the finals, okay, it is what it is. But I, I would much – I don't know, I'll ask you, what would you prefer, to be 0 for 0 or 0 for 1 in finals as a player? Like you never get there or you get there, you win two games or whatever, and the other team is just better than you. I, I'd like to make it once. Right. Yeah, I mean, because – I mean, I, I think either way, if it's just a one-off, right? Like If you're talking, you make it three times and lose, then I'm like, okay, I would have rather not gone at all. <laughs> and the reason is because in today's society, you get judged more for losing there than yeah, you do getting bounced true. in the first round. But there's also a strong chance that you don't get remembered. Like there, There's a very real possibility. I don't say he's going to get lost to time, but there's a strong chance that when you're looking back on this era of the NBA – he's not the first name out of your mouth. You will remember Damian Lillard because there's some iconic moments for him in his career, but he's overshadowed by the other greatest shooter of all time in Steph Curry in his same era, and he doesn't have any of the major playoff moments outside of a nice series winner here or there in the second round to show for it. Yeah, that's the hard part, right? He's had such a unique career where he's had two shots to end playoff series, not win playoff games to win playoff series I watched both of them live and almost you passed me both. out you me both. because I was thinking to myself both shots were incredible the second one against OKC was just the most disrespectful shot I've ever seen in my life and I remember thinking to myself yes that is a bad shot for anybody else but that man because that is a bad man I don't know how far you are in your Game of Thrones jersey journey and I'm sure you will recall this but there's a high quality Game of Thrones meme that is from the Paul George press conference of it's a bad shot at the end of the day oh. you know that's so so remind me to send that your way okay. <laughs> uh, as you as you continue your journey through Westeros we are going to continue talking a little bit of NBA in our next segment that's coming up here in about 7 minutes or so Brendan Nunez is going to join us out west he covers the Sacramento Kings so we'll get a bow put on the ramifications from that DeMontis Sabonis Tyrese Halliburton buddy healed deal that brought two pieces, two very key pieces for the Pacers. And then, of course, Sabonis elevating the Kings to new heights last year, plus the Chris Duarte deal that sees another trade be taken care of between the Kings and the Pacers. But I do want to talk a little bit of Colts in this opening segment as well. We've had a number of chats about where this offense is at. And over the last couple of weeks, we haven't glossed over it necessarily, but we've not had as much in tune with what to expect from this defensive unit. And I'm not going to go where you would think we would start, which is that cornerback room and all the inexperience that is there outside of Kenny Moore and what's really going to happen. I want to focus up front for just a second, because I know Eddie had kind of brought this up with us 
last week, but as you look up in the trenches, we know where DeForest Buckner's mentality is for this team. Yeah. We understand he does not want this to be a, a porous rebuild, re- whatever, <laughs> whatever word. I'm not trying to... Porous, good to, word. To, I'm good not, word. Thank you. I'm not trying to ruin a Friday for DeForest Buckner, <laughs> but on these outside edges... Year after year, the call is there for not only health, but consistency from Quiddy Pay, and then enter in the offseason, Samson Ebucom. As you look around the edges and as you're evaluating that in training camp, where should the bar be on the outside of this defensive line in your mind? I think you have to seriously think that Quiddy and Dio are your future. Yeah. Because you didn't re-sign Unique Ngakwe. You added Samson, obviously, but you didn't really – add too many more pieces to that line. So I, my whole perspective going into it is thinking that they are banking on those two taking a leap. Obviously, it would be great if it was both of them, but the one I'm looking at the most is Quiddy Pay because last year he had a fluke ankle injury that kind of derailed his season, and even though he's able to come back at the end, he just wasn't the same. So you just wonder if he can stay healthy, avoid those fluky injuries. Because, again, I hate when people talk about injuries in football in particular where it's like they got to train more. It's like sometimes you could just literally have a 300-pound guy just fall on your ankle in the most awkward way. You did everything right that you could, and that's what happened to Quiddy Pay. So they're banking on him to be better. He expects to be better, and I personally expect it as well. I think that I would be much more – inclined to believe in his growth and his development than let's say like the offensive line like I don't know about the offensive line I probably feel a little bit better about the D line than I do the offensive line when you're a team that is young or inexperienced in your cornerback room the area where you can make up for it or clean it up a little bit and take some weight off of their shoulders obviously is helped by what you're going to see from the other parts of the secondary if you're able to see a high-level consistent year from Julian Blackman where your expectations are for Rodney Thomas. But it also starts so much up front with being able to not only win those battles, but either force quarterbacks out of the pocket or create chaos-like scenarios where you're able to make them uncomfortable to a point that it makes things easier on your young corners and, and, and help slow the game down to that point. And we're, we're at a territory this year where even though the six and a half is what it is set by Vegas and we know the schedule is, is softer compared to the rest of the league, even though expectations are this is going to be a rebuilding year, man, you need to see something out of those up front, regardless of what you have behind you from a corner standpoint, because you know that's going to be a rotating audition this year with the draft picks you made at corner. But there are serious decisions that are going to have to be made in the trenches when you're looking at what next offseason is going to hold. Absolutely. I think we put so much focus on the development of the quarterback. Mm -hmm. But as Shane Steichen has said all offseason, it's the development of the entire team. And so while we might focus more on the quarterback than anybody else, because obviously that's the most primary thing we see on a football field when it comes to play from a team and GM standpoint, team building standpoint, you have to understand, okay, there are question marks about Quiddy and Dio. There are question marks about what, what our secondary is going to look like. Outside of Rodney Thomas, is Julian Blackman someone we bring back? And so, again, like you said, it does start in the trenches. I think that you can bank on DeForest Buckner and Grover Stewart being big, menacing, game-wrecking type players, but can they get enough support from the outside and the edges to at least keep defenses honest? Because, again, if all you're getting is pushed on the inside, it's not – 
too difficult for teams to scheme up against that and make sure they get the ball out quick and things like that to offset that and force you to really um, rely on a young defensive back core. And um, you just wonder if that's something that's going to continue to, I guess, buck up throughout the season where you just wonder, do we have enough? Did we do enough? And quite honestly, I don't think they have enough on the back end to be a really good defensive secondary. But I do think, to your point, that we should see the defensive line take a step forward this season given another year of experience, some health. They added some pieces. Don't forget about uh, Aditamo Adabare from mm-hmm. Northwestern. Freak athlete. He could be somebody who can get some spot plays here and there. So I'm excited to see what that looks like. But it is something they have to weigh, especially when we talk about futures because, as you alluded to, DeForest Buckner doesn't want to go through a rebuild. But I'll be the one to say it, and you'll be the one to say it. It is a rebuild. It ha- it should be. If it isn't, it should be. This is not a team that was built on the same timeline as Anthony Richardson because they weren't planning on this a year ago. So they need to make sure that they at least evaluate their young talent and figure out who they want to keep around Anthony Richardson going forward. We'll close with this on this segment. When you look around the AFC, there's a reason that the Jets just gave one of, the, I think, the second largest extension of from that position group to Quinn Williams yesterday. There's a reason that the Bills, even though it didn't work out for them, went and got Von Miller last season, didn't work out for them because he couldn't stay healthy and you know wound up with an injury that kept him out of the playoffs. And there's a reason that Chris Jones is the next in line to be paid because <laughs> yeah. you have all these great quarterbacks in the National Football League, but you need game records on the other side of the ball to be able to balance it out because at some point, somebody is going to have to make a stop and... That is often the difference maker. So you're going to need that from the Colts, regardless of if it's in this current era this year or if it is as you're mapping things out moving forward for Anthony Richardson with who's going to help him on the other side of the football. we got a great show for you today. We're going to start things off with a trip out west. Again, finalizing things, Pacers, Kings, the connections they've had over the last two seasons. Brendan Nunez is going to join us. He covers the Sacramento Kings. You can find his work on Kings underscore Pulse, part of the Blue Wire Podcast Network. We'll have him when we return on the Fan Midday Show. Whether it's audiobooks or all-time greatest hits, long live listening to your favorites. Learn more about Kaskali Ribocyclob 200 milligrams at KISQALI.com and talk to your doctor to see if Kaskali is right for you. Still here in the DriveHubler.com studio alongside Nathaniel Finch on the ones and twos, my buddy Jimmy Cook, my fellow James not on the ones and twos, but on the mic with me. So always appreciate it. Great Friday here on the Midday Show. As we alluded to before the break, we were going to pivot out west to the Kings and the Pacers because we're going to ask who won the trade? Who won the trade? <laughs> we got the best guy to ask about that. Brendan Nunez out there covering the Kings for Blue Wire Pods. Brendan, how you doing? I'm doing good, guys. Thanks for having me on. Thanks for joining, man. I met Brendan out in Summer League last year in person for nice. the first time. Been covering the Kings does a great job. He does the video clips and he does writing. He does podcasts. He does it all. And so I have to ask you, Brendan, who won the trade? And I mean that sarcastically, but now that we're a year plus Which removed trade? from it. <laughs> yeah, I know. <laughs> but now that we're a year plus removed from the DeMontis Sabonis, Tyrese Halliburton, Buddy Heel trade, are you surprised at all about how well it's worked out for both sides? Definitely surprised. You know, I, I'm not going to do the uh, the whole who won because <laughs> in my mind, in my mind, I think it's a rare win-win. Truly, like, extremely rare. You know, and I do think there is still some risk 
involved from Sacramento side more so than Indiana. It's like you know that Tyrese is going to be that sort of guy moving forward. Um, even if maybe some people are skeptical about the number, I don't know about if if that's anybody. Um, near where you guys are, but I've heard some skepticisms. I think Tyrese totally deserved it. And I've heard the same stuff about, you know, the extension that Montez Sabonis just got, some skepticism behind him getting that number. But clearly these are centerpieces of both of these franchises that they're happy to commit to, and I, and I think for, for really good reason. So as, uh, as boring as it may be, I, I really feel like this is a win-win. For us here in Indianapolis, Brendan, it's only been about nine seasons since the Pacers won a playoff series. And in that same vein, it's only been three years since their last trip to the playoffs of any kind. Now, granted, those were uneven teams at times and they were short stints. But regardless of who won or lost that trade, as you covered this team and as you look at where Sacramento is from last season to now, the ultimate goal as a championship, sure, but to end that drought and to have the basketball world captivating, captivated by the Sacramento Kings, I, I, I'm sure is, is a reward and just a, a very thrilling experience across the board for you on that beat. Yeah, I don't think that people fully are uh, realize how much that meant, like locally for the city of Sacramento. You know, like it having been 16 years when right next door there was a historic franchise with the Golden State Warriors, right? There's practically a whole generation that why would they ever choose to be Kings fans? And <laughs> there was such an excitement around the team last year. I mean, everybody in the city was all about it everywhere they went. Um, you heard the 15 minutes prior to tip-off in game one was probably the loudest stadium I've been in. And that's when all the guys ran out, like just the energy in that city and how much it was needed to really just feed a hand, a fan base that was super hungry, but also engage some of the younger fans that I think could have very easily gravitated towards Golden State during that time. Brandon, when you look at the Kings, I know Sabonis is a big part of it. And I would argue with Pacers fans all day long about him being the best player on the team when he was a part of the franchise. He's over there now. He's sort of like that hub in the middle of the floor. But what did you think of the jump that De'Aaron Fox took? I know people talk so much about the jump Tyrese Halliburton took as the primary ball handler, as the number one guy. But with him no longer in sack, it seemed like it opened up even more for De'Aaron Fox, who was already trending in that direction. And then obviously last year, I think, turned into a true star. Yeah, I think the same. I mean, you could actually see it from the very first game that De'Aaron and Domas played together, that their chemistry was just going to – it worked right away. Even little stuff of them both being lefties, but as you guys are aware, Sabonis sets amazing screens and is so good at setting up his teammates. But even beyond that, it's all the spacing around those guys that De'Aaron Fox never really had. Like, Buddy Heald and Tyrese Halliburton were the two best shooters that – I believe De'Aaron Fox has played with with maybe like Nemanja Bialica up there, I guess. Um, but those guys far and away, usually there's a non-shooter or two on the floor next to De'Aaron. And when you add um, not only Demonis Sabonis making things easier, but you still have Harrison Barnes there to space the floor. You now got Malik Monk and Kevin Herter there spacing the floor. Trey Lyles had a good year. Keegan Murray set the rookie record for three-pointers made. So, I think that spacing was so essential to unlocking De'Aaron because he did get better. Uh, he, his three-point shot improved a bit, 
Um, and, and with that came the free throw numbers. That's something he works on a lot and he's going to work on, he said, every year until unless he somehow starts shooting like Steph. Um, but <laughs> I think also the clutch numbers. Yes. He could have just always been this guy, but we never had the way to know. Like, to be blunt, the Kings weren't in enough close games for us to have ever seen this. There was stuff earlier in his career where he'd have big clutch moments, but it was so far and few between. So while I do think De'Aaron got better, I think it's a lot of what he already was, just with more ideal circumstances around him. To piggyback of what you said where he was being super clutch, I mean, that man turned into MJ in the fourth quarter more times than not this past season. But someone who looked like MJ in Summer League was Keegan Murray. So you were there. Oh, my goodness, was I pleasantly surprised at how good he looked. Not saying he wasn't going to improve, but, Brandon, what was your impression of the obvious growth that he has had in his game this offseason? Yeah, I mean, I didn't even expect that. You know, I was very much a, I will admit, a Jaden Ivey guy at the draft. And even after a little – Last year, I'm like, man, I wonder if Benedict Matherin should have even been the guy here. Um, but Keegan has absolutely, I think, shown some growth and made me shake some of maybe the unfair low ceiling uh, label that I maybe had on him. There was some flashes last year of off the dribble stuff, but he only shot a, a little over one pull-up attempt a game. So I think the big thing for me is really the mindset and willingness to go out there and put up enough shots to get to 41, to get to the free throw line 15 times each in those two games right about. Um, And you just hear him being more vocal. You know, it's joked about all the time that he's very like monotone and doesn't show much of much emotion, but you could even just hear talking to him and pressers, how much more vocal he's gotten going into this year. He was like vocal leader was sort of the role of that summer league team that he'd been taking on and and on the court I mean just being willing to go out there and be the primary I think was a big step and some of that off the dribble stuff is is definitely real man 41 I'm not one to overreact to summer league you know I gotta I gotta try to pace myself a little bit but it's hard to not get a little excited by 40 by 40 piece Brendan, a local angle here in Indianapolis is when you look at where the offseason is for Sacramento, one of our very own, a a Tech High School grad in Trey Lyles, gets a two-year, $16 million contract out there with the Kings when free agency began uh, just a couple weeks ago. What will a player of where Lyles is in his career from just a depth standpoint bring to the Kings? And then overall, as you reflect on what they've done this offseason as they try to take another step forward, where are they on that path? Yeah, Trey Lyles really pulled at my heartstrings in his ex- in his exit interviews. He talked about how I believe he'd been on four teams in five years and how, you know, in that process, you don't really want to make friends too close because eventually you're going to end up on another team and not around those dudes. And last year, he said, was the first year he really let himself build those sort of relationships off the court. Um, we saw him courtside at Summer League with all the guys uh, at the beginning of Vegas and he very clearly was like, my top priority is to come back to Sacramento. And so I'm glad to have him back, even outside of, like, as a person. I'm pretty sure all the fours they throw up in the locker room is something relating to Trey Lyles. I can't exactly <laughs> figure out what's going on there. But I think that started by Trey. Um, they have a, gate, a great chemistry, chemistry between all these guys. And on the floor, Trey was amazing last year. The three-point shooting that he provides, the quick decision-making, it it was joked a lot when he was leaving Detroit that this guy just pumped fakes every single time. And 
those have gotten eliminated. He's, you know, making a firm decision and sticking to it, whether he's letting it fly or putting it on the floor and making plays from there. Um, so I, I think Trey's been great. I'm really glad that he's still on the roster going into next year. But when it comes to overall offseason moves, you know, it is kind of cliche, but it is a little run it back. You know, there's some differences. There's Chris Duarte that you guys are obviously familiar with that's mm-hmm. going to be taking the spot of Terrence Davis, and I, I think that's a notable upgrade. And then you got Sasha Vizentov, EuroLeague MVP, coming over as well and practically taking the spot of Chimezi Metu, which I also think is a notable upgrade. So I, I think that you got some – some depth improvement, but overall you're, you're bringing back a lot of the same core pieces here. You mentioned it there with Chris Duarte, someone who I have a lot of respect for, one of the nicest guys I've ever covered in my life. He was probably the first Pacers player to ever just call me by my first name and speak to me outside of a meeting, a media setting. So he's a really nice guy. But from a basketball standpoint, Obviously, the Kings took a flyer on him. So how do you see Chris Duarte maybe fitting in and reestablishing himself in the NBA out there in Sacramento? Yeah, I got the same impression of of Duarte being a super nice guy. Like, right away, um, just seems to be the nicest guy out there. And quickly, I had a group chat having a debate if him or Larry Fitzgerald had whiter teeth for what it's worth. (laughs) Duarte's always out there smiling. Um, But I... I mean, I think from the Kings' standpoint, it's a really low-risk move. Yeah. You know, they traded a future, two future seconds, one of them being their own and one being a Dallas second for a guy that really fits their type. You know, they, they love winners, guys that won at different levels. And, and Duarte obviously did that at the college level. Um, and I think that just makes the context of how he's going to work in Sacramento's system pretty obvious. You know, there's the, the big sell seems to be his – chemistry with DeMontis Sabonis, right, as I'm sure you guys are aware. Mm-hmm. Um, Domas speaks Spanish to him on the floor. Duarte, uh, English is, is sort of the second language, so I think that's pretty helpful for him. And there, there's a clear comfort between the two there. And um, I, I'd actually be curious what you guys think, because from my impression, part of Duarte last year was not only not having Domas there, but then Buddy Heald and Benedict Matherin come in, and there's a little bit of a uh, positional overlap, but I'd be curious to hear your guys' impression of uh, Duarte's potential fit. Yeah, I think there was a log jam last year with him, and then the injuries didn't help because when he did come back and he started playing a little bit well, he would get hurt, he'd be out. So I think he has to be get healthy and stay healthy to get an opportunity, a true opportunity in Sacramento. But I think he fits fine because he provides some length, some size, and he can shoot the ball from the outside. He's a pretty good three-point shooter. And again, like you said, his chemistry with Sabonis is pretty solid. And one of the things that stands out to me about Duarte, just a quick story, I remember we were talking to him before a game, after a game, something like that in a media setting, and he said a word wrong in English, and he looks at us, he's like, ah, oh, you know, you know, my English isn't all that great. And I tell him to his face, it's like, my Spanish is non-existent, Duarte. Like, you're the most brilliant guy in this room right now, so, like, you don't need to apologize if your English isn't, you know, the most crisp thing. Like, he's a really good dude, really humble guy, and I think the change of scenery could be good for him because of his skill set. There's not really much pressure, and he's going to fit that mold of what you already have in Sacramento, which is those bigger wing-type players who knock down shots, defend, and just keep the floor space for guys like De'Aaron Fox to continue to rip it up, you know, on the inside. Yeah, he started when when we asked him in Vegas, uh, you know, what do you feel like you bring? He started with, I'm a shooter. And, you know, those those shooting numbers aren't amazing, but 
clearly that's uh, something that he thinks he can bring and, and something that I mentioned, you know, with how Darren Fox was unlocked and I think Domas also having a great year. Spacing is so important. So if that's the case, I think there's some minutes for him. Yeah, I mean, if you're out there in Sacramento and you're a Kings fan just trying to look at where Duarte is going to fit, I mean, James hit the nail on the head. There was a log jam here. There wasn't a true avenue for him to be able to thrive and get minutes. And when he was initially coming out of college, the thought was, well, perhaps a team that is championship ready or is right there looking for a shooter or a more experienced older guard out of the draft, that's where he would end up. He obviously ends up here and his rookie season in 55 games, I mean, he had a nice percentage, right around 37% from beyond the arc, but that dipped severely down to 31% this year. And as James outlined, the injuries and everything. But yeah, I mean, you're just hoping for a change of scenery, and hopefully he's able to at least fill that role, regardless of where the minutes are of being somebody that can be involved in the rotation, knock down a bucket for you, play some defense on the other end. And it, even though Sacramento might not be at the very top of the Western Conference in terms of just what might be the Vegas favorite to win it next year I think that's what you're hoping for is that he can be the player that he was projected to be out of the draft yeah and I I think there is a little bit of a positional question in Sacramento as well I mean I think what it comes down to is they're going to ask him to play the three a decent bit Um, there's still Kevin Herter there's still Malik Monk I don't know if Davion Mitchell could get some run at the two um, this coming season and then Harrison Barnes Keegan Murray is your sort of three four so there's not much three depth, and I think that they're going to be asking Duarte to to sort of fill that a little bit and, and run some three-guard lineups. But I, I'm excited to see what they got. I think overall, from a roster construction standpoint, it's definitely an improvement over um, the guy they had in that spot previously in Terrence Davis. So here's my hard-hitting question of the day. Light the beam. I know this started. It was a thing. It became a thing. I love it. I think it's great for the league, for the Kings, just to – create some fun but when did you see it really latch on out there in Sacramento where it wasn't just this gimmicky thing and it was something that really was like a rallying cry for what turned out to be one of the best seasons they've had in recent memory I mean it's probably when we realized that the team was actually good and not like (laughs) you know and and I think that was pretty early on like they lost their first four games and then I think there were a couple up and down um but after that, they never lost, I want to say, more than three games in a row and, and went on a seven-game winning streak not long after. And you could just tell that it was it was a little different this year. Um, so the city rallied around that pretty quick. I think they would have rallied around it no matter what, to be honest. But it's a pretty gutsy move, i got to say, from the organization because if you put that beam up and you win – 30 games, 28 games. Can you imagine all the memes from around the league? You would be, you know, the Kings were already tangs and getting laughed at and stuff. The memes would have been off the charts. So it's a gutsy move. It definitely got fully embraced, I think, from around the league when the rest of the teams realized they were good. I think it was actually the Pacers. Every team does this if they beat the Kings. Um but they always post their own Photoshop of like their yeah, own beam yeah. of a different color. And I want to say the Pacers put up a yellow one after they beat the Kings this year, if I'm remembering that right. But yeah, it's, it's definitely fun and it's here to stay. So that's awesome. My last one, 50 cent. I remember seeing him last year at summer league. And I was like, what the heck is he doing with the Kings owner? Um, what has it been like seeing him around, the arena and around the team and obviously being involved with this new era of Kings basketball. 
Yeah, I will say I, I think Fifty is a fan of a lot of different NBA. <laughs> yeah, I was going to say fan of money. <laughs> earlier this year, uh, yeah, you know, I think it's got a little something to do with who he can partner with. But like stuff like that is is pretty cool, you know. Like it's just uh, caring a little bit more about Sacramento. Um, you know, Fifty Cent being there. There's Aziz on, uh, or I'm sorry. Uh, Hassan Minaj, who is a comedian based out of Sacramento and very vocal about liking the Kings. Um, good amount of people that that show up to these games now, man. And they're just an extremely entertaining team. You know, they're not just – it's not just winning games. It's like from an entertainment standpoint, the way they get up and down the floor, the way that they're shooting, the, the play – the baller player movement is a really extremely entertaining brand of basketball. So – I guess 50 Cent enjoys it. I, I think that he might enjoy uh, some paycheck involved in that a little <laughs> bit more. That may be a little bit of a factor, but news that he just likes lighting the beam. I'm just glad the purple jerseys are back and they're not actually going away like that marketing uh, campaign they had when they released those all purples the other day. <laughs> well, Brandon, thanks for having you know some time with us. I appreciate you coming on, man. And I'll make sure that uh, – when the beam gets lit, when the Pacers and the Kings are in the finals, that uh, I'm sitting next to you and talking about it. So <laughs> you take it easy out west, man, and I'll talk to you soon. Sounds good, guys. I appreciate it. All right. That was Brendan Nunez covering the Kings. For I know that Blue was a Wire joke, Pilots. but, but when, when is that finals that you're, you're painting there? How? Uh... I'm, I'm, I'm picturing like 2026, you know, Pacers get there. You know, or maybe I want to smash the under and I'll go 2024 next year, okay? <laughs> next year. Everyone keeps talking about building and building blocks and steps to success. Skip those steps, okay? Yep, just leapfrog just it all. Just hop on Tyrese Halliburton's back and ride him to the finals. Same thing with De'Aaron Fox. But, I mean, jokes aside, he's not lying when he says, I can't think of a trade in recent NBA memory that has worked out as well as this one involving the players that it involved and both sides come out looking this good. What needs to happen, though, and it already has. Like, I get it. I understand what you're saying, that it's definitely a win for the Pacers as well because you have a franchise cornerstone in Tyrese Halliburton. But as we continue this NBA chapter of the show, we'll take a quick break, and then we'll discuss when we come back the way it really becomes a win for the Pacers as well, and we'll dive into that when we return on the Fan Midday Show. Whether it's audiobooks or all-time greatest hits, long live listening to your favorites. Learn more about Kaskali Ribocyclob 200 milligrams at KISQALI.com and talk to your doctor to see if Kaskali is right for you. Quick segment here. Great conversation with Brendan Nunez. Covers the Sacramento Kings on the Blue Wire Podcast Network. Another NBA conversation with Matt Issa, NBA writer for SB Nation, when we return, but very quickly to pay off that tease. James, they got to win. For the trade to really be a win, now is the time that the money's been handed out for a leap forward next year. We've set the bar high with a playoff spot, a playoff spot, but needs something. I need another step forward. I completely agree. You won from the Brinks truck perspective, got to win on the court now. Amen to that. Couldn't have said it better myself. We'll keep NBA, but go big picture with Matt Issa of SB Nation when we come back on the Fan Midday Show. Still here in the DriveHubler.com studio, rocking out, vibing out. I see Jimmy's got the moves going on. Feeling good. (laughs) Feeling good, feeling great. Feeling great, feeling good. How are you, James? I'm doing good. Nathaniel Finch on the ones and twos. 
We're going to resume our NBA conversation here with Matt Issa, who covers the NBA for SB Nation. And a few other outlets, including Forbes Sports as well. Matt, how you doing? I'm doing really good. Um, I was just reflecting this morning. This is my first time on live radio. So, yeah, feeling good, feeling great. Just steal some words. <laughs> I stole it from Outcast, so we're all fine. It's not a big deal. <laughs> so, Matt, we'll obviously start with the Pacers. What did you think of their offseason additions to upgrade the roster, highlighted by Bruce Brown, Obi Toppin? Uh, beautiful. No, it was a beautiful offseason. I think uh, one thing last year, the best teams, best coaches, they follow this philosophy. They call it KYP, Know Your Personnel. Rick Carlisle, he looks at this team, he's like, they're young, okay? They, they have a lot of three-point shooters. They like to run up and down the court. We have Tyrese Halliburton, who's like the Midwest Magic Johnson, right? <laughs> so, like, let's play fast. Let's play fast. And I think, you know, what the front office realizes is, one, like, this works. Like, this is how our guys like to play, our core guys. Two, like, this sells. Well, this team is fun. People like watching them. So they go get two guys in Bruce Brown, and um, Obi Toppin, who, you know, they can run the floor, they can finish, uh, they can play fast, they can play with pace. Um, so, yeah, I thought that was awesome, really doubling down on what your key personnel has now. And then I don't follow the draft that heavily. I don't watch these guys until they're at the NBA level. But um, the things I've heard about Walker with the defensive versatility and how that might um, coalesce with Miles Turner – I think that could be really interesting as well. So, yeah, I think they had an awesome offseason. So all I heard was championship in 2024. <laughs> <laughs> no, I'm joking. I wouldn't go that far. I wouldn't go that far. <laughs> you said that. <laughs> but you talked about it right there, you know, the, the Midwest magic, a little bit of a joke with Tyrese Halliburton. But what did you think of his leap that he made last year? I know you said you're really locked into, like, the NBA film, the NBA analytics. And for a guy to be 20-10 and shoot 40% from three – how special of a season was that? And did we appreciate that enough? Okay, so, you know, I uh, I wasn't the first person. I actually probably was lower than consensus on Tyrese Halliburton for a little while. When they traded the bonus, uh, they traded the bonus for him. I was like, everyone's like, oh, the Pacers just had a massive steal. Ha ha. You know, the Kings are silly, stupid Kings, right? I was like, hold your horses. We don't even know if Tyrese Halliburton is going to be as good of a player in the future as the bonus is now. <laughs> I watched year three. So um, there's this website called Cerebro Sports. Uh, they have a really good collection of data. And they have this um, tool. It's called their global search tool. Basically, it allows you to, like, find using, like, st- specific statistical indicators, um, like player seasons that have been, like, comparable. And the only guys in NBA history with seasons comparable to the year Therese Halliburton had last year, according to their database, are all all-star guards. I'm talking Mark Price, um, James Harden, Stephen Curry, Chris Paul, Steve Nash, guys like that. And so, you know, I, I dug a little bit deeper. I started watching him more religiously. And, again, I need to see him in the playoffs before I make any, like, judgments on the kind of, like, player, like, he can be at his peak. But, like, his offensive game is – he has pieces. He has remnants of all of the great offensive guards like I can think of. Like he, 
he moves around like he's Steph Curry. Like when he passes the ball, he doesn't just stand there. He moves around. He has James Harden step back. He runs the floor in transition like Magic Johnson. He's um, egalitarian in the way he plays. He's selfless like Steve Nash, like Mark Price, like Chris Paul, like all the great floor generals. He just, I don't know, I'm, I'm obsessed with his offensive package. And then on defense, he's not like the world's greatest defender, but he's long. And that's so huge in the NBA today, having length. So, yeah, I mean, I know he signed that extension, but I I really think he's he's going to be like a top 15 player very soon, if not better. Matt, when we look back at that trade, because right now th- there is still a sense of, of happy vibes on both sides for the Pacers. It is, okay, we have a cornerstone piece to build around and develop, and, and we've locked him up now for six more seasons with the five-year extension plus this season that they already had under contract for. And for the Kings, it's we have DeMontis Sabonis, a, a NBA caliber player that helped guide us and was a key piece into the reason that we were a threat last year in the playoffs and had a successful year as they did. But from the Pacers' side of things, now that extension is done, and by all means, I think Tyrese Halliburton's worth every penny, but for us to look back five years from now and say, yeah, that really was a win-win trade, truly, what do the Pacers need to do next year in your mind? Next year? Well, I or, or, or over the next three, let's say. Yeah. Not just next year, but but over the over the life of this contract with Tyrese, what will have been, yeah, that was really a win-win for both teams? Because it feels like, at least from on-court success, as many expected, the Kings got the better end in the right now. Yeah, again, like this is a long-term move. Nobody thought the Kings were even going to be as good as they were sure. last year, right? I'm sure you guys weren't expecting mm-hmm. at this time last year. Um. I don't. I don't want to be that guy. I'm not. I'm not big on like uh, rings culture. I think that's like a really nihilistic way of sure. doing the game. I think every team has their own goals. Like I think the Kings, like this season, they were first round exit. Like I think Kings fans are delighted with how that season mm-hmm. turned out. Um, for the Pacers, long term, if you have okay, if you have so let's talk about Terry Salbert. I think if if he if you know if everything trends the way it should for him, that's an All NBA caliber guy running the show for you, right? When you have an All NBA caliber guy, if you surround him with the right pieces, like you know, look at look at Jimmy Butler. He's an All NBA caliber guy, um, and look what they do with him. They make deep playoff runs. So I think for this to be a success, I think it's about the front office kind of building around Halliburton because I think again I need to see him in the playoffs first before I know it, but I think. Mm-hmm he's capable of steering the ship on some deep playoff runs. I'm not going to say championship runs, but I think he can for sure make some deep runs given the right personnel. I'll say championship because I can't, <laughs> I'm just joking. <laughs> I, I think, I think it's, I think it's possible, but I'm just saying like, I don't want that to be like, yeah, we're with you measurement for success, you know? Right. Yeah. We're with you on that. I mean, it's, it's, it's a very uh, archaic and, and just, yeah. you know, a zero sum game effectively. If all you're saying mm-hmm. is, well, if you don't have a ring to your name, then your career was not worth anything. Yeah. yeah. And, and quite honestly, the guy who's beloved more than anybody out here in Indiana is Reggie Miller, yep. who didn't win it all. Yep. So, um, Matt, I do want to pivot away from the Pacers for a second and look at the league big picture-wise. And I know Dame is grabbing a lot of headlines as of late, but one headline sort of died down a bit, I would imagine, is Bradley Beal to the Suns. And I wanted to have you on to discuss this because I know, again, you look at the game from a very analytical standpoint and from how things could fit. And how do you see that sort of meshing or maybe not meshing out in Phoenix considering that they have three guys who are very, very good off the dribble and can shoot the ball very well, and then a fourth max guy as well on the roster in DeAndre Ayton. Yeah. Uh, I'm going to share something with you guys. 
So when the game really started to make sense to me, the game of basketball, is when I realized it's not that different from like how we understand economics, right? Everything comes with a trade-off, okay? And I think as fans sometimes, we look at, we look at a trade happen or a potential trade and we poo-poo it because we can immediately identify a vulnerability and now presents, right? For example, like when Beal... When Beal got traded, they're like, well, uh, they still don't have depth or defense. And I'm like, yeah, they have weaknesses, but so does pretty much every professional sports team in the history of everything. You know, you're always going to have weaknesses. But I think what this Beal trade did, going effectively basically Beal for Paul, um, it, their weaknesses are no different, right? They still have questions on defense and with their depth, right? But it made their strengths stronger. You know, their top three, their three-headed snake is more powerful now, more potent. Its, it's venom is more potent because, I mean, Bradley Beal at this stage in the game is a better player than Paul. So I think it was a, a no-brainer move for the Suns. I don't really – I mean, you know, it's like life in general. Like, what do they always say? Take it one day at a time. It's the same thing with basketball. You can't think, like – I know it's important to plan ahead, and sometimes you make some bad moves that could scar you forever and ever. But, like, you can't think about, like, oh, we have to pay Beal X amount of dollars this year or whatever because – at the end of the day, the league is showing us. If you want to get off some money, you can get off of it, you know? In that same vein, as you look around the other moves that have yet to take place and kind of where the market, from a trade-off standpoint, post-Rudy Gobert trade, post-Kevin Durant trade, post-Bradley Beal trade, as you look at James Harden wanting out of Philadelphia, as you look at Damian Lillard wanting out of Portland, where is the real I know let's start just with one of them let's start with Dame I know it's clear he wants to go to Miami and Portland doesn't want to be forced into a bad deal but but where is the trade-off for them when you have a young who you think is the next face in Scoot Henderson of your franchise waiting in the wings but also not wanting to undersell to a point where you can't build around him as a small market team like Portland is yeah I guess okay so my thing is okay so, like, my, I, I hate the discourse behind this because I feel like everybody thinks, like, it's Damian Lillard's job to be, like, there's, okay, there's one camp that thinks it's Damian Lillard's job to be the noble soldier and, like, not <laughs> use the leverage he has. Sure. Like, you, like, okay, for example, when you guys are negotiating your contracts, don't you use the leverage you have? I, I know I do that with my stuff. I use what leverage I have to my advantage. That's, like, human nature. Why wouldn't you use your leverage, right? So, it makes sense for Dame to do what he's doing. It makes sense for Portland to do what they're doing. Now, what should Portland – I think Portland doesn't – okay, you never – you never, when you're trading a star who's said they want out, you never get, like, a yeah. dollar for a dollar, right? You're yeah, always right. giving up some. But I think in this case, like, people are forgetting Portland wasn't supposed to get the number three pick, right? They got lucky there. So, like, you got that luck. So, it's, it's okay if you settle for a little bit less than – like, you know, what you probably would have gotten for I think it's okay. Like, you shouldn't put that much stress on it. I don't think you should turn this into a whole thing and kind of, like, ruin the legacy of one of your franchise's greatest players and end it in such an ugly way. Like, I do think, you know, you shouldn't just adhere to Miami's will. Um, but I, I think there's, like, a balance. Like, you don't need to maximize it, but you also shouldn't just, you know, give, give him for nothing because he wants that and Miami wants that. Like, don't be afraid to call his bluff. I know he'll – if you trade him, if you play, if you trade him to the Pelicans, he'll he'll suit up. Like you know what I mean. Yeah. Um, 
So, yeah. Yeah, I mean, and to be clear, neither of us, and clearly you don't either, we're not at a stage where we view either side as the villain or the hero of this. Like, even though there's been some shots fired in terms of demands in the media, we're not at a point where I'm necessarily rooting for one side or the other because no. of loyalty or because of, oh, it's a mean team and they should fold <laughs> this. Like, I'm, I'm not at that point where either person is good or bad right now. No, it's, this is standard. Like, this is... This is no different than any. I don't know why we treat basketball any different than any other corporation. I mean, it's just like an employer and an employee arguing over like salary or something like that, you know? So, I don't know. It's a silly thing that people do where they like, they in that situation wouldn't take the moral high ground, but they always assume <laughs> that the parties involved should. Yeah. So, I don't know. I'll tell you what, man. I am team no loyalty. Like, forget all of that. Like, you got to figure <laughs> out what's best for you in this in this field, in this life. But um, to pivot away from him, one player that we do know is in a new situation, obviously that's been resolved, is Chris Paul. Now, the question is, will he come off the bench or will he start? But just overall in general – what are your thoughts on him going to that team, joining that point guard, and trying to do something that he has done in his career, which is win it all? Yeah. Okay. I just want to be on the record of saying this. I think people have soured on Poole way too fast. Like, if you, like, I think if he was just shooting like four or five percentage points higher from three this season, the whole perception on the dude changes. You know what I mean? I think we're forgetting how good we thought he was a year ago at this time. So I do think – I know why the the Warriors did what they did. It was for salary moves. Maybe they overreacted to the second apron a little bit. Um, but I just want to put that out there. Mm-hmm. With the Paul thing, okay, I've always been of the camp where it's like, hey, Matt, you know, you study the game a lot. You're still not a front office executive. <laughs> you, still, you, you know what I mean? You still got to gotta understand that these guys are not the bumbling idiots we make them out to be. Like, there's some logic to the things they do. Now, the more I think about it, so with Poole, when you, he, he was basically, you know, Steph Curry's de facto backup, right? Yeah. And Poole's, Poole's, like, what made him great is he could kind of masquerade as Steph Curry. He wasn't Steph Curry, but he was, like, 80% of him whatever on offense right he could he could do the little movement he could do the split cuts he'd come off screens he could run around he could shoot he'd shoot a 40 footer when he didn't need to in a certain late game situation that people got mad about i digress yeah yeah yeah, exactly (laughs) he could do all those things right exactly all is like he gives you a different style you know what i mean like so maybe that's what they're trying to do now they're like okay when Curry's not on the floor, we want a change of pace. We want to slow things down. We want to have another pitch we can throw at you. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Um, so maybe there's that. Maybe Paul looks different next year if he's only playing like 20, 25 minutes per game in the regular season and he's fresh in the playoffs. Who knows? Like this guy's a, he's in the 99.999 percentile of competitiveness. He still wants to win a championship. I'm sure he's going to come back in great shape next year and be a productive player. So I'm going to, I'm uh, I'm going to sit back and see what happens, but that's kind of what my guess is, what the front office is thinking right now. When you look at, as we jump around the NBA a bit here with you, when you look at where Boston is at now versus where they were at the end of the season, the Chris Daft Porzingis edition is the largest looming aspect of that, and, and no more Marcus Smart, of course, as well, and the ongoing negotiation with Jalen Brown. But assuming it gets worked out with Brown, and it is going to be a trio of Brown and Tatum, and Porzingis, as you look at the rest of the East, wh- where is Boston? Are they right there still punch for punch with Milwaukee in terms of your top of the conference going into next year? 
Yeah, I'd say so. Um, I don't think it's because like uh, Boston got it much better or anything like that. I just think it's just because you know nobody else. I mean, Phillies. We don't even know what's going to happen in <laughs> Philly right now in Harden, right? Yeah. And then Milwaukee, you know, they're kind of running back the same core. I know they have a new coach who, by the way, I think is a great guy, very intelligent, very smart, um, and Coach Griffin. But they're running back the similar core. They're all getting older, so we'll see about that. Boston, I, I, okay, so it's just, okay, my biggest thing when I watched the Celtics this year, especially in that Heat series, is they – they have. They didn't have a guy to me who could kind of. So there's a saying, right? In basketball, it's like you got to keep the energy in the ball. You got to keep the ball moving, right? And you guys remember two years ago, say when people were talking about Jason Tatum and Jalen Brown, like, oh, they'll never, they'll never work together because they're both like these bucket getters. They're both ball stoppers, mm-hmm. whatever. Um, and then like things changed when they moved Marcus Smart to point guard, and he helped kind of keep the energy in the ball, keep their ball movement going. You know what I mean? So yeah. they're at their best, basically, when the ball's moving, when they're keeping the energy in the ball. The thing Miami's defense does the best is they put you in the mud. They take the energy out of the ball. Right? With all their, like, swarming and the way they trap you and the way they, you know, gap the, the paint and make it tough for you to drive in there, they're like the energy suckers, okay? And so I feel like well, this offseason when I was looking at this team, I'm like, they need somebody who can who – can, be their pace setter when things like start to fall apart. We can steady them. I think Smart wasn't doing as great of a job of that anymore. So like I understand moving him, but like I guess my question, the question, the big question I have about them is, is can Malcolm Brogdon be that guy next year? Um, he, he was injured. People are probably going to forget this. Like when we look at this series ten years from now, but he was injured during that Miami series. He wasn't himself. He wasn't that effective. He was getting torched whenever he was on the floor on defense. Is he going to be healthy next year? I'm worried that that's not going to be the case because they initially tried to trade him and the Clippers backed out. The Clippers of all teams backed out because of health issues. <laughs> yeah, I, I'm shocked <laughs> that injuries continue to plague Malcolm Brogdon's yeah. career. It's not like that was experienced many a night here in Indiana, no more than exactly. two years ago. So, And then it's the Clippers of all teams, the, the, the freaking Clippers. If you they know hit I mean? the brakes, then something – yeah, exactly, yeah. exactly. Yeah, it yeah. probably is. Honestly, it's, yeah, it's probably a red flag if they're saying no. Yep, yep. Yeah, yeah. That's what worries me. So I'm worried about them not having that kind of steadying force, that that like true classical kind of point guard who can kind of steady their offense when they get stuck in the mud. Well, because Smart's still there. Smart's still there if if Brogdon's billables aren't what they were. Like if he has a clean bill of health, they're not moving on from Smart. Yeah, and then I really like that because I I I think one thing people are like um, not understanding about this trade is Memphis got the best player. Um, I know Christoph Porzingis has like the sexier numbers, but Marcus Smart, he asked me, is a better basketball player than Christoph Porzingis at this point. So if they could have been able to move on from Brogdon, who's like, I would say, like a similar level player in the hierarchy of the league to Porzingis and keep Smart, I feel a lot better about this team. But I'm really worried about what losing Smart does to them. So here's one that's a little bit out there, not too crazy, but when you look at the league as a whole, and like you said, you're. I know you're knee-deep in film throughout the season. And I always admire how you guys, some of you other reporters out there, really break down film. And it just reiterates how much I don't watch enough games to really have opinions on on players and teams and things like that. But um, when you look at the league as a whole, who maybe is a guy or two that you expect to make a leap next year into being one of the better players in the league or someone we'll be talking about 
on a night-to-night basis, similar to like an SGA, for example. I don't know if people expected SGA to be as good as he was last season, but he took a leap to being an all-NBA you know, NBA caliber player. I'm not saying the guy has to be that good, but who's someone you're looking at like, okay, this is somebody to keep an eye on to maybe enter that new age of stardom? Okay, so he's not going to be a star player, I don't think ever, but he's going to be like a superstar role player. I think – Keep your eyes out on Trey Murphy the third. I think he yes. is like New Orleans, yeah. the the future of super of superstar role players. Right? He can he can shoot the three. He can fin- he can catch lobs. Super athletic. Super long. Can defend. He can put the ball on the floor and drive when you close out on him. Um, I really like him. I I expect Poole to have a big bounce back here. I really do, and I don't think it'll be empty calories. I think he's going to be legitimately good. I think he he said you know development isn't linear. And I remember watching him his third season, so their championship season, and just being like, "And I know you guys are gonna, you guys are gonna kill me. Indiana's gonna kill me for saying this." But I remember at the end of the third season, I there wasn't really that much of a gap in my mind between his ceiling and Tyrese Halliburton's ceiling. Now I will say I've digressed from that. I think Halliburton's ceiling is much higher, but I don't think that Poole doesn't have All Star juice in him either. So I could see Poole um, having a big bounce back year. Anyone else? Saw me? If I could predict these things, you know, I'd, I'd probably be doing something other than. <laughs> no, no. Um, and I know I'll put you on the spot, uh, but to your point, though, Matt, I do agree that after Poole's third season when they won the championship, that the gap between him and Tyrese wasn't like as wide as it is now. And so you saying that in hindsight isn't some crazy take because, again, at that point in time, you the Pacers weren't exactly sure maybe of what they had. And obviously, Poole was coming off a championship where he very well helped them win it. Like, I don't think that the like the Warriors win that championship without him in 2022. So, um, I, I will have your back there for the uh, Pacers fans uh, come with their pitchforks. <laughs> yeah, I mean, just look at 2023. They fell short cause, in part because he wasn't able to, to take some of the load off of Curry in the non-Curry minutes, you know? Mm-hmm. Last thing for me, Matt. When the Pacers acquired Bruce Brown right out of the gates and free agency, and then you see the subsequent moods of Obi Toppin and and the glimpses that you've seen just of, we're not overreacting to Summer League, but it's like, okay, I see what the Pacers see in Jairus Walker in terms of where they have to jump off with him. As you look at this Pacers roster, and particularly that addition of Bruce Brown, what do you make of it heading into, again, not a prediction, but just what do you make of the adjustments they've made, especially with Bruce Brown coming in, for the 2023-24 campaign. Really quick, I know it's um it's bad uh it's bad uh bad practice to go back in the conversation a little bit, but in terms of breakout players as we talk about this Pacers roster, I was actually at Summer League and I've been on this guy since, you know, I started watching him when I was studying Mathurin film. But Andrew Nemhard is good at basketball, okay? He, I know he's a little bit older, so his ceiling for development is limited. But I could see him having kind of a big bump his second year in the league. Um, he's such a splendid uh, defender. I love his perimeter defense. He's a really underrated ball handler and passer. Um, you know, I think the shot is – I think he'll continue to get good looks playing off of guys like Halliburton and Brown. So I just wanted to say that. And then to pivot over to what I think of the team's overall outlook – I think there there are definitely I mean like again nobody in the East is getting that much better. Uh, I think the Cavs have made some moves around the margins. The Knicks are running the same crew. The Bulls are running pretty much the same crew. Washington got worse. 
I don't see the Pistons or the Hornets really ascending too high up the ranks. I could definitely see the honestly, I could see a world where the Pacers don't have to play a playing game and be in the playoffs next season. So we always have um, the bar set. That's what we're hoping for. Yeah, I will say this though: um, that fans could just manage their expectations on. That could that could manage their team's expectations on. I'd say one. I still have question marks about the defense. I know Jairus Walker is supposed to be like a, a really good defensive prospect. It's very rare that rookies are good defenders early on. And I love Miles Turner, but he's not like that 99th percentile defender where he can anchor an entire defense on his lonesome. I think he can be the spearhead of a great defense, but I don't think he can anchor it on his lonesome. So I wanna, I'm hesitant to talk about the defense. And I still think because they added so many great transition players, I still question how good of a half-court offense this team can be. And I think that's really going to be contingent upon how much guys like Benedict Matherin grow this season and how much he's able to kind of be that secondary creator when Halliburton's not on the floor or to allow Halliburton to play off the ball. All right. Well, Matt, we appreciate you coming on and discussing all things NBA, including the beloved Pacers here in Indiana. I'll check in with you soon, man, but good luck with everything going forward. And hopefully get some downtime with Summer League winding down here. Oh, yeah. No, I've been I've been chillaxing, watching. I've uh, been watching some Manu Ginobili film. Uh, that's what I like to do in my free time. But uh, <laughs> no, it's very cool to catch up with you guys. Thank you so much for having me on. All right. You Absolutely. Have Thanks, Matt. All righty. All right, that was Matt Issa, covers the NBA for SB Nation, Forbes Sports, and a few other outlets. Really good dude. And um, he wanted to hedge a lot of his takes, which I applaud him for. You have to do that when you're in his space. But I am no longer in the NBA space like that, so I'm just going to take everything that they say, (laughs) every guest that we have. All I hear is championship, championship. But, no, I do think he made a very good point about the half-court offense. That is a bit of a point of concern for me personally as well. I just wonder, okay, what does it look like when the ball slows down? And if they do make the playoffs, it's going to slow down. You can't just play transition basketball all the time. It is a strength, but it can't be – how do I say Like It can't be like your main entree. Like You have to have other things that you get figured out. But, again, you feel a lot better about this team, the offense, and the defense than than you were, I would say, six months ago. Well, that's where – and, again, whether it is – splitting time between first and second unit or whether it's as a starter wherever they decide to utilize him there's going to be areas where things open up within this half court and particularly from a from a not a driving in the literal sense but i mean driving of when you need relief off of tyrese halliburton or when you need to have somebody that's going to go make a play for you you're relying on that at some point being bruce brown in this rotation regardless Mm -hmm. of where he's at or where the ultimate final starting five is that is half the reason that he was able to captivate the free agent market from what he did in the finals and during that playoff run, not because he was the first or second best option or even the third best option on that team, but because he was able to know his role and be able to be in situations where he was not afraid to go create his own shot if necessary, but also moving without the basketball. And that's something you're going to need, not just from Bruce Brown, but we talk about the leap forward from Benedict Matherin this year. Yeah, That is, yeah. as you asked earlier this week, where is the, second option going to be or who's the more reliable piece alongside Tyrese Halliburton where you're confident yes this team can operate in the half court maybe confident is the right word right now but you need that to be Benedict Mather moving forward and the other side of that coin that he mentioned is defensively that is an area where do I think it's going to be better this year 
Absolutely, because of where the bar was set a year ago, it's not that hard to get to go. better. But but what it's up? not just marginally better. You want you want a massive increase in production on that side of the ball, and I think that there is a a good chance that you see that with the pieces they have. But the other good point he brought up. It doesn't always happen with rookies right away. So there does need to be some level of patience of, oh, if, if, if Jairus Walker isn't... I'm not saying you can't still have your championship parade, <laughs> but I'm just saying in the first couple weeks of October, if it's not all perfection from Jairus Walker on the defensive end, it's not going to surprise many because of how tough it is right away. This is a feel-good Friday. <laughs> I am feeling... So I'm letting the hot takes fly, but in all seriousness, I know there'll be some growing pains, but I think defensively, what I really liked from Jarrett's was just the effort. There's going to be mistakes inevitably, but I heard it from my high school coach, and I'm sure it's probably the same for every coach in every sport. When you make mistakes but your effort is there and they're like effort mistakes, mm-hmm. you can deal with that more than trying to lift the guy up or having to be more engaged. Like He seemed very engaged defensively, and because of that, I think that defense is always something that you control a little bit easier than offense because – you can't really have off days on defense unless you just don't play hard enough. Now, there's some things you have to learn scheme-wise and technique-wise with different players and knowing your scouting report and things like that. But I just think that from a mental standpoint, it's a little bit easier to stay consistent on defense because it's effort. It's it's how much dog you have in you, how much you want it. And then with offense, obviously, it comes and goes. You see some of the greatest shooters ever going to these slumps. But I think if you can hang your hat defensively, with Jairus Walker and others, you can sort of eke out a few ugly wins throughout the season. That might be the difference between being a playoff team or a play-in team. That's James Boyd. I'm Jimmy Cook. Still to come, we have a conversation at the top of the hour with the fans' own Kevin Bowen. He'll make his weekly appearance. We'll discuss where he is in terms of the Colts' offseason on the countdown to training camp. Again, that'll be at the top of the 2 o'clock hour. Great conversations with Matt Issa and Brendan Nunez. Those will be up on the podcast a little bit later today. Just search the Fan Midday Show wherever you get your podcast. Much more, including a look Still at some other position areas, maybe not for concern, but that we'll continue to monitor when training camp arrives on the Colts side of things. We come back on the Fan Midday Show. Whether it's audiobooks or all-time greatest hits, long live listening to your favorites. Learn more about Kaskali Ribocyclob 200 milligrams at KISQALI.com and talk to your doctor to see if Kaskali is right for you. Welcome back to the Fan Midday Show. Jimmy <laughs> Cook and James Boyd. Nathaniel Finch behind the ones and twos. James getting strays against the state I of know, Illinois. Nathaniel talking about my, my hometown, Romeoville, Illinois. It, it happens. It's okay. I'm proud to be from there. But man, he's beating me up during the break. I, I usually go straight after Kentucky. I don't, I don't usually attack <laughs> the neighbors over there because I don't want to have any... Uh, I mean, it's different when it's Illinois, Indiana on the basketball court. Right or on the football field, but but in terms of just like looking around, like I, all right, I like Chicago, like everybody else. So, like, so, you know. so let me ask this: We were talking about it off air. Kentucky men's basketball just practiced at Drake's house. Where does IU practice? <laughs> what, what artist is going to welcome in Woody and crew? I mean. <laughs> baby face hey i'm with it i'm with it i'm with it <laughs> I, I, I mean at, at this stage is where things are at like i, I don't know there, there's yet to be a uh a, a star-studded musician in terms of like our era right now like the obvious answer for from being a bloomington side of things would be john mellencamp if that was ever to but but that's not that's not the 
we, he threw out Jack Harlow for Louisville, and, and we're not talking about modern artists here. We're talking about <laughs> you know an entirely different era. So I don't know. I don't know who would claim that, but much like uh, Drake did. Anybody could claim IU. I mean, Drake has true. no ties to Kentucky outside of the fact that that was when he was on his train of wearing different uh, track suits. Do you remember when he warmed or, up with uh, them? Yes, I do. And, and, what, and what he's at, uh, he's, he's at a team film session with Coach Cal, and he's just in the full full blue track suit warm-up. Yes, I, I do remember that. Oh, so. I would honestly love that experience. Like, IU, if you're listening, I know As we have our beef. or being Drake? No, 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 not being Drake, but just being – I guess in that role where I just show up in full-blown okay. gear, like, IU, I know we've had our beef, but if you're listening, <laughs> you know, Woody and company, you know, Calvert down there now, hit your boy up. I will gladly wear the candy stripe pants and sit in on all the uh, pregame rituals and things sure. like that to show you what I got. And, you know, Woody, give me give me 10 minutes and I'll get you 10 shots. <laughs> Don't know if they're going in, but I'll, I'll shoot that thing. You're ready. You're, <laughs> I'm ready. You're, you're, you're ready to take the floor at Assembly Hall. That's it's, it's good to know. We'll keep that on file and and make sure it's. I mean, hey, in terms of defensive assignments, you already got the uh, the Anthony Richardson uh, draw look, earlier this week. I know week. all of the, like I know all of his tendencies. I you're can lock him up. I'm ready. I'm ready. I'm ready. Look, you talk a lot uh, crazier <laughs> when you're not on the floor with him anymore. Yeah, I was locking up Anthony Richardson. I blocked his shot. I dunked on him. All these things happened. But no video of that, of course. But um, jokes aside, I think um, it would be really cool to kind of see who they could bring out if I were, IU were to do something like that. I know they had G Herbo a while back, but too much on a tangent, but we'll get back to more of the NFL, I guess. And when it comes to Anthony Richardson not being on a basketball court but on the football field, um, what is one of the things that you are looking forward to just in that first week or so, Jimmy, when you just evaluate how he's taking in being for the first time sort of center stage in front of this fan base, in front of this city? First week of training camp? Yes. So for me, I I don't want it to look any different in terms of – You've seen him in every press conference, in every film session, in terms of like what's available to the public. He appears to not be afraid of said moment. Like maybe the throws aren't perfect every time. Maybe people were hopping into James' mentions on Twitter talking about, "Oh, you're only showing bad throws of Anthony Richardson, <laughs> but you're throwing good good throws of Gardner Minshew." And all those conspiracy theories that will continue to arise. I don't want it from a demeanor standpoint and what he is at least giving off from interviews and from his ability as a quarterback to feel like he's overwhelmed. And on top of that, I don't want him to think, if I am in that front office, that he is in a situation where he has to be perfect right out of the gate. Because the biggest conversation we've had the last couple of weeks, we'll continue to have it until training camp arrives, is there's no question the obvious answer is if you were trying just to put yourself in the best position just to win games right out of the gate... Yes, Gardner Minshew is going to be more polished. I would hope Gardner Minshew would look more efficient and more comfortable than Anthony Richardson out of the gate because Gardner Minshew is an established veteran in this league. And even though most of his career is as a spot starter, not like a true multi-year starter or or the headpiece of a franchise, he knows what the day-to-day life is in the NFL and he knows how to operate in-game situations. So does Anthony Richardson, just not at the NFL level. So it's just it's it's an area where I don't want him to be afraid, and I don't think he will be, to make mistakes. I don't want that to change his progression and his development because whether it's Jim Irsay, whether it's Shane Steichen, whether it is anybody within the Colts organization, Chris Ballard, 
they know that at the end of the day, the only way you're going to be able to grow in this league, regardless of how many reps you had in college, and he didn't have a ton, is to get under center and have real live experience in practice. So that from a surface value is what I'm most looking forward to. In terms of his game, I mean, we've seen for so long the hype from the combine and how he's the most decorated physical specimen the combine's ever seen. And and, and he's just a freak athlete. And, and you've seen it in person again yeah. over at the wire earlier this week. <laughs> but, but aside from that, and just looking at, there's been all this talk about what he can do on the field and you've seen it in the highlight reels in college as much as you have the lows, I want to see it in person. I want to see the just, how did he do that? Now, I don't mean just the throws. I mean on scrambles. I want to see him go pick up 20, 30 yards if if he has to, if that's what the particular situation dictates for him. I want to be blown away by what he's able to do as a football player. I think that's what a lot of Colts fans want to see. They want to see growth and development, but there's a sense in this quarterback room and it could easily go south over the next couple of years. But right now, there's a sense of optimism and excitement around the Colts quarterback room that we haven't seen in four or five, six seasons. I mean, really since really since Andrew Luck, has there been a level of, man, I'm really excited for what the quarterback room is going to hold this year. Because it was a little bit there for Phillip Rivers, but then once he left, and it was the Carson Wentz experience... And then everything that went with Matt Ryan, the more Colts fans you talk to, each year less and less and less optimism was about who was under center. <laughs> you might be able to talk yourself into it once the move happens, but once the games arrive, it was like, man, this is what we're... It was a Band-Aid, and at least with Richardson, if that's the same feeling you have, like, man, this is our quarterback, you would hope those moments are also mixed with, wow, this guy can play, he's young, let's let him grow. That's the feeling you want to have this year, aside from the wins and losses. Agreed. And I think that's a sentiment that I really heard from fans is that they were had to talk themselves into every move the last few years mm-hmm. because you're a fan, right? You don't want to just be perpetually negative. So it's like, sure. okay, they made this move. I'm behind my team. I'm going to stick with them. Yep. And you, you, you say it over in the mirror. It's like, okay, this is going to work. This is going to work. And then it doesn't. And you get sort of disappointed. I think this is a legitimate move where – you can have hope and it's legitimate. It's not something that's you have to kind of muster up or change your feelings about. Now, I know there's people who are like, hey, this guy was just too raw to pick or whatever. But given where they were in the draft, that is, the mm-hmm. order of the draft, picking number four, not having the first option at quarterback, and then also knowing you need a quarterback and who was available after the first two went off the board and C.J. Stroud and Bryce Young at number one, this, to me, was probably the best-case scenario because you're taking a swing on a guy who, again, was very raw in college, pretty inconsistent, but has some things that you just don't see every year. And mm-hmm. I think that he is, quite honestly, an athlete where, at least at the position of quarterback, that you just don't see too often in each generation because even from a physical standpoint, he's more athletic than Cam Newton. Now, again, I know people will say it and kind of roll their eyes now, but if he were to be on that trajectory where it's like, okay, Cam Newton won an MVP, he was first-team All-Pro, he went to the Super Bowl, if those are the things that he can sort of reach in his career, mm-hmm. then you made a great pick. 
And so it might not feel like that now for like Carolina. It's like, oh, we had Cam Newton, whoop de doo. But in that time, where like that two three year span, obviously the MVP season, where he was dominating, I mean, they made it to a Super Bowl. You were, like, <laughs> and, and I mean, they were a player or two away from probably yeah. winning it. And so again, you want obviously a longer window with Anthony Richardson than that one. But I'm just saying, if he can reach that level, you feel very good about that, and you have reason to hope for that. Just given where you were last season, like you alluded to, the band-aids that you've kind of ripped off year after year, you feel like you have a solution. You have some ointment to put on sure. whatever boo-boo you have. Yeah. And you just hope that, again, with time, this can be something that manifests itself into being a special union between him and this city and this franchise. I mean, he's 21 years old, and the word the word of the day and the word of the offseason is going to be that he is, he is unproven, Raw needs time to develop. And again, I know that there's a lot of particularly Colts fans that have followed the team for a long time that get frustrated with the idea of, oh, well, it's hope. That's great. Hope's not going to win you any championships, win you any games. And and I get that. That's fine. But neither was Band-Aid veteran that only played for part of the season and eventually had injuries or right. Band-Aid veteran that at times was like, what is this dude looking at on the field? This is just making me pull my own hair out. It is it is a new step with this Colts franchise that, again, I, I get it. There is still a portion of the fan base that wants them to get back to the winning ways they had for basically what could have been, what would have been shaped up to the Brett Favre, Aaron Rodgers bookend of two all-time great quarterbacks yeah. that you have just fallen into your lap yeah. and able to build that way. And then we all know what happened with Andrew. And, and now you're finally in at least a new step era. Now, again, by week two or week four, whenever this journey starts, the conversation is no longer going to be, oh, well, you know, I'm very hopeful for what Anthony Richardson's going to be. No, it is analyzing him, yeah, looking at where the growth is. Yeah. And it's not to say that if after six or seven games that you should feel like as a Colts fan, this is what he is. Like, this is a complete body of work. Right, no. But but, but you need a baseline. Yeah. You need a baseline for how he takes the NFL, how he's able to adjust to it. A lot of people forget this, unless you're a diehard NFL fan, and you can still find the headlines. Going into last year, and especially two years ago, the conversation nationally was, Jalen Hurts was not the guy in Philadelphia. It yes. was not going to work out. I'm glad you he was said a, this. He was, he was a misfire, and they need to move on and figure something else out. That, that was a real, like, not not me, not James. I mean, national conversations, NFL insiders of, this isn't working. This is not a franchise quarterback. They need to move on and figure something else out. It took a couple of years with Jalen Hurts, who, again, maybe you think, like I do, Patrick Mahomes is the better quarterback. Or maybe you think it's Joe Burrow or Josh Allen are better than Jalen Hurts. Either way, the fact that you're in that conversation that you are in the realm of best five quarterbacks in the National Football League, and you're not just a placeholder, you legitimately belong there, is something that Jalen Hurts doesn't get in Philadelphia if they don't legitimately believe in him, go get him a missing weapon they needed in A.J. Brown, and commit around him and give him time to grow and develop. That is why there's a difference between using hope as a shield and legitimately saying, you know, he's 21 years old. Even if he had started 26 games in college and it still came out this year and was 21 years old, I would still be like, man, he's young. Like he, he's super. <laughs> like, like when, when is he a complete quarterback? Yeah, and and you cannot say that he's gonna be complete by any stretch of the imagination at any point throughout this upcoming season. 
like you alluded to, you just want to see signs of growth. And I think part of it that gets – and I'm glad you brought up Jalen Hurts because, again, he was not looked at like he is now. No. Going into last season, there was still like, is he good enough? They upgraded the team around him. And to his credit, he also worked on his game. And that's what I want to see from Richardson is what does his work ethic look like throughout a season when we're not there just, you know, on these spot days during OTAs and mini camp or even out there for training camp? What does it look like on the random Tuesday, you know what I mean, Mm -hmm. in November what does it look like when he's grinding and he's really trying to get better? And what are the conversations like around that time? You know, is he a student of the game? I'm sure he's saying that now. And I don't doubt him. I'm just saying, what does it look like when you're thrown in there and then you have to sort of recalibrate, recalibrate, I'm sorry, what you thought you knew versus what you're still learning. And it's the same thing for Shane Steichen too, because we can say, He's been an offensive coordinator. He's a football guru. He's a quarterback guru. He's helped Justin Herbert, Phillip Rivers. Congrats on the 10th kid, Rivers. <laughs> <laughs> and then even with Jalen Hurts, you know, he made all these guys have great seasons, but this is his first time also being a head coach. So how do you manage helping develop your young quarterback, but also raising the level of the team? Because much we talk about the team not being viewed in the win-loss column, coaches are they always are. And even if he gets some grace this season, if they come out and win three games, there's going to be conversations about, is he the guy? Because I think on paper, they have enough talent to still be competitive. The biggest question mark is obviously the quarterback. I want to clarify one thing, because never the godfather of sports media, uh, it's of, of Indiana of all time, really hits me with a text I need to clarify. The great Eddie White hit me with a text message, and I want to clarify this because Eddie said that I was saying that Favre fell into the Packers' lap. I was not talking about Brett Favre. I was talking about how it fell into the Colts' lap in terms of oh, the yes. second quarterback of Andrew Luck, of, of it just working out that way, and how Rodgers kind of fell into the Packers' lap to some extent in terms of He's sitting behind one of the all-time greats. I, I was in no way, shape, or form. Get him, Eddie. Eduardo Get him. Tra- trying to say that Ron Wolf. <laughs> <laughs> I was not trying to in any way say that the front office work by the Green Bay Packers to acquire Brett Favre does not deserve the tip of the cap that it does getting him from Atlanta. That was by no way, shape, or form <laughs> that side, Eddie. I just want to clarify that up front. I was talking more or less about the Colts because it's so hard in the National Football League to acquire via the draft, home run, clear as day, can't miss quarterback talent. And it's fine to do it like once in a generation, like to have a generational talent quarterback, but the chance that you're able to do it twice and it work out is very, very rare. You saw it happen with Rodgers in Green Bay, and you saw it happen even though it was short-lived with Andrew Luck here. So all I'm saying there is that very rarely are you a franchise that is able to have two generation of fan bases that grew up with one of, if not the best quarterback of his time. Yeah, I agree. I agree. It doesn't mean, happen. No, I mean, I wrote it in several stories like, welcome to the real world, where great players <laughs> yeah. aren't just dropped in your lap and you build around them. I mean, this is the reality of several teams in the NFL that the Colts haven't really felt in a few decades where – yeah, you don't have the number one pick. Okay, you still want to win. How do you do that? Right. And you look at some of the top quarterbacks in the NFL right now, 
And to my knowledge, you know, you have the Joe Burrows, obviously the Trevor Lawrence's, but then Patrick Mahomes wasn't the number one pick. Nope. Jalen Hurts wasn't the number one. He was a second rounder. You know, Josh Allen wasn't the number one pick, Justin Herbert. So you can find that guy or at least someone you think you can win with beyond the first pick. But I think it also becomes harder when you have to just kind of cultivate around him because, again, and we don't know what Bryce Young is going to be like. If he comes out and he's prolific, it's like, hey, that's why he was number one pick. But, again, it's just not as set in stone as it has been where I think the conversation, especially with Andrew Luck, it wasn't a conversation about if he's going to be anything. It was like he's either a multi-time Pro Bowler or a Hall of Famer. Mm -hmm. Like that was his – floor and ceiling and then obviously the injuries and things like that happened and he retired early but like everyone knew he was going to be really really good that's just not the same with Anthony Richardson which I think is why the infrastructure and all of that has to be in place to help him get to that level and there's a lot of upside a lot of promise there but it's just not as easy and from a reporting standpoint that entices me because it's yeah. like it could go either way he could be this he could be that and I think if anything, and I'll stand by this statement until he leaves Indianapolis, whether it's you know after a few years or 10 years, whatever, it won't be because he won't work hard. Like The kid works hard. He cares a ton. And I asked him about that, and he was even saying, like, I ask him all the time, like, am I doing enough? You know, Am I learning enough? I want to learn more. Can you give me more? And so it's kind of helping him realize that you can't get it all tomorrow. But as I always say, one of these tomorrows, you could get it, and you could yep. be the guy. We're going to take a quick break. Still to come, a conversation with Kevin Bowen. Top of the hour as we roll on a Friday on the Fan Midday Show. Whether it's audiobooks or all-time greatest hits, long live listening to your favorites. Learn more about Kaskali Ribocyclob 200 milligrams at KISQALI.com and talk to your doctor to see if Kaskali is right for you. Back here in the DriveHuber.com studios, Jimmy Cook, James Boyd, Nathaniel Finch with us as well. Baseball is back. We'll have some bets for you in the back half of the show. On top of that, some rumor development of what might happen from a contract extension standpoint or not. Not on the Colts front, but on other running backs in the National Football League, a la Saquon Barkley, a la Josh Jacobs. We're going to get into that. And if there is a real area to be gained, if you were to sit out training camp for one of those players, or if it is just a futile process that is only preventing the inevitable which is reporting for week one and for the start of those seasons because we talked about it and I know we only have like 30 seconds in this segment but it is a losing battle particularly at the running back spot to try to fight franchise tags I think that going forward we will not see the Le'Veon Bell situation arise again so you can play hardball all you want but until we get to week one and the guy really isn't there I just won't believe in this last see it you talk about Poster children being an example of why things do or don't work in the NFL. Le'Veon Bell is that in terms of trying to yes. fight the franchise tag. One of our favorites, the fan zone, Kevin Bowen, joins us next when we come back on the Fan Midday Show, 93.5107.5 The Fan. Jimmy Cook and James Boyd here in the DriveHubor.com studios. Coming up in just a few minutes, a conversation with Kevin Bowen. Our weekly chat with the fan's own KB. Follow him on Twitter at KBowen1070. Countdown continues to Colts camp, and we'll get into that dynamic of trying to fight the franchise tag that's currently ongoing with Saquon Barkley, and that'll be a larger topic as well that James and I get into at 2.30, but it is, it's fascinating to see where the power lies within the NFL, and you know that players 
want to have that long-term security. They want to be able to know that they don't have to worry about where they're going to be or where their opportunities are going to come from on a year-over-year basis. They want to be able to have multi-year contracts under their belt. And again, we're still a couple steps away from that with Jonathan Taylor because in all likelihood, you would hope they're able to get an extension, but it's a very real-world situation that likes Saquon Barkley are having to deal with right now. We have Kevin Bowen now. You hear him weekdays 7 to 10 a.m. on Kevin and Query. And of course, you find all of his work covering Colts, Pacers, and everything out of the state of Indiana on 1075thefan.com. KB, happy Friday to you. How are you, my friend? Boys, how are we doing? Doing good. Doing great. Now we're talking to you. The day has gotten better, KB. It's always the highlight of the Friday, KB, <laughs> when we have you on. Low bar, low bar. <laughs> Kev, I guess we'll start there from the conversation that continues to loom with Jonathan Taylor. I want to go big picture first nationally as we continue to see the stories and the reports on Saquon Barkley maybe taking the first steps towards not learning the lesson from Le'Veon Bell in that he might not report for training camp and how far that goes. I think you and I agree it's a futile exercise, but as you look at the current running backs that either are free agents or that are fighting tags and you look at that type of drama not wanted in West 56th Street, what are your takeaways from it all? Well, I, I feel like in typical fashion with this, you probably have to wait for the Barkley thing to play out, I would assume, before Taylor um, yeah. inks any sort of extension. You know, he seems to be the first domino. I don't know, maybe Dalvin Cook would, would even be on that list. Uh, you know, Barkley seems to be in a little bit of a more of a similar, you know, age, time, time path in his career, et cetera, et cetera, than, than Cook. So, you know, to me, that's probably the first domino um, that needs to happen before something concrete gets done with Taylor. And I think the interesting thing to point out with your running back contracts in general, I mean, if you look at these guys in the NFL right now, um, you know, I think we all would think Derrick Henry has got to be paid near the top of the running back contract list. If you look at it, you know, Henry makes $12.5 million, which is third on the list. But if you look at Christian McCaffrey and Alvin Kamara, they both make $15 million or more. I mean, that, that's a pretty significant mm-hmm. gap from one and two to three. So now the question becomes for Taylor is, you know, how much leverage does he have in wanting to try and get to that? I assume he wants to be in the 15-ish number because he doesn't, you know, play third down uh, anywhere near, you know, how Kamara and, and McCaffrey are used. I mean, hell, they're pretty much hybrid running back wide out. So, right. You know, obviously, in our little bubble here in this market, we care about it. But I think NFL-wide, they're really going to be plugged into this of, like, Taylor is really generational on first and second down. But, again, how does that compare to, you know, today's day and age in the NFL where, you know, running back usage and how, you know, valuable you are, you know, third down is a big, big deal when you're handed out, you know, significant money. I definitely agree with your take on that because – it's so hard to gauge, and again, JT might be in a better position than the others because they haven't paid the quarterback here in Indianapolis, so maybe he can sort of use that as an argument to get more money. But one guy who's already getting paid a ton of money who you've written about recently is Shaq Leonard. And I know in your story that I read about it, even with uh, Ursay's appearance on the Pat McAfee show, how big of a season do you think it is for him to sort of prove – his worth and his value. And I'm not saying that in a demeaning way. I just mean it in a, it's hard to justify paying him that amount of money if he isn't out there. 
Yeah, huge. I mean, I, I mean, massive. I think you can make the argument that he might have the most to prove of anybody on the roster. Um, and there's multiple factors. I think anytime you have a guy that's dealt with injuries now for over a year, uh, he falls into the a lot to prove category. Mm-hmm. Um, I know you've brought this up before, James, but if you look at you know Leonard's contract, there's an out after this coming season. So in a way, he's kind of in a contract year. I know not technically on paper. Yeah like Kenny Moore, like Julian Blackman, but he kind of falls into the quitty pay contract here. You know, quitty pay is in year three of that first round pick deal. And so for those guys, you get a fifth year team option that has to be picked up after your third season. So for quitty pay, he will find out next spring whether or not um, he will be under contract through, I guess it would be 2025 if I have my math right there on that end. Um, and that's where kind of Leonard is, you know, with, with the out, which I think it's an $8 million uh, cap hit that the Colts would, would take, which is, or I think it's $8 million of dead cap, which is still a notable number, but there is an out, which is much different than the out would be right now. So, yes, it is a, a, a outside of Kenny Moore, I, I, I can't really think of any other Colt you would put on. I think the offensive lineman, you could probably group into that uh, a ton to prove just with how disappointing last season was for them. But you would put Leonard really high on the list. I, I think the other thing that makes Leonard so unique, and again, I know we are nowhere near him getting back to this level, or at least we have got to see a whole lot from him on the field before we get back to that level. But when I think about turnovers, and I think oftentimes people in the NFL are like, turnovers can kind of come in bunches, and turnovers can be a bit lucky. You know, it, it, it's hard to sustain that over time. I mean, unless you got some dominant edge pass rusher that whatever is forcing fumbles at a Robert Mathis rate, it's hard to do that. Leonard's first four seasons in the NFL, I mean, he proved that turnovers weren't necessarily luck. Like, he was doing it on an annual basis, on a week-in, week-out basis. And I think that's what makes his loss, again, so immense. Obviously, last year when he was on the field, he was a liability. But – if you can plug that into your defense to where turnovers aren't lucky, like his presence makes the Colts a takeaway type of you know defense, that obviously does wonders for your football team. But again, I know we're a long ways away from even going anywhere uh, near that uh, question with with him. Yeah, it felt like a formality rather than randomness when he was at his peak, but. One player who could be affected the most by him, other than Shaq himself, obviously, is EJ Speed. And maybe what did he show you last season, KB? Because I think he impressed me and showed me that he could potentially be an every-down linebacker in the NFL. Yeah, you know, I'll actually go back to the COVID Christmas game, which I I, I know was the year before. I think you were on the beat, James. But, you know, that was that wild game in Arizona where the Colts had so many guys out due to COVID. And he came in and played really, really good football for you in a very kind of sudden change situation. I go back to week one this past season. I mean, that was such an awful game down in Houston. But what really spurred the Colts getting back into that game was speed, making a Leonard type of defensive play, uh, coming coming off the edge. They had to get a strip sack of Davis Mills. Mm -hmm. and, And that kind of started some things. And the Colts getting back into that game and eventually, of course, tying the the Texans so you know I think there's been these flashes um I think the staff loves him regardless of Leonard I think Gus Bradley's been very public in his praise of EJ Speed and you know obviously they gave him a two-year deal they they could have given him just a one-year deal if they you know weren't as high on him and I think when you draft a player like him 
I mean, his college background is a wild story. I mean, Tarleton State, but I guess him and Leonard, to continue the similarities, both come from Division II schools. If South Carolina State is in a different stratosphere than Tarleton State in terms of you know actual like football programs they play. Mm-hmm. Tarleton State isn't playing Clemson. You know, South Carolina State played Clemson. So it, it, you knew when you drafted him in the fifth round in 2019, like, hey, we're going to have to be patient with him. You know, linebacker's not the position that he's played you know, for his entire life. So I think there was a lot of growth. And, you know, in typical Ballard fashion, he's hit on these linebackers, and speed is another one. So uh, if Leonard Telsey, he falls in that third linebacker role, which is like, okay, how much do you play those guys in today's NFL? If he's not healthy, or even maybe if he is, you know, speed's role could be huge for this team. So, uh, yeah, I'm really interested to see, you know, exactly. Of course, Leonard has some influence on that, certainly. But even if Leonard is a little bit healthy, I do think Speed's a guy that they want to see just more of on the field. We talk so often, Kevin Bowen joins us here on the Fan Midday Show, about patience with rookies and then looking for a leap when you enter your second year. Another piece that you focused on on 107.5thefan.com is with second-year player Nick Cross. And we already know the question marks and inexperience in the cornerback room. But when you look at a safety conversation with likely Julian Blackman and Ronnie Thomas, which Thomas's case, as you highlighted in that article, KB, taken a little bit later in that same draft. As you reevaluated, where are you at on cross from having to respond to time on the bench last year as a rookie to what, if any, opportunities will be in front of him this year and year two with the team? Yeah, Jimmy, I don't think he walks into camp and is like in this open, strong safety competition like he was this time last year. Um, So I I think Julian Blackman is the lead guy to line up next to Rodney Thomas uh, at at safety. Uh, But you talk about Cross as a rookie season. I mean, just the definition of a roller coaster. First off, he's 20 years old when he gets drafted. One of the youngest guys in last year's draft. The Colts trade back into the third round to take him. And basically the talk in the room that night was, where would he go in the 2023 draft? Because he was so young and he was underclassman leaving Maryland early. And the consensus was he'd be a second-round pick. So the Colts felt, all right, if we can get him a pick 90 or whatever, and next year he's going to go pick 40, he's worth a third-rounder. You know, Last year, again, he wins the starting job, takes the advantage of Rodney McLeod not being out there for the start of camp, and, and really flashed. I, I, I thought he had several moments in camp, but then, boy, he got into that regular season opener, he played every snap, but clearly they didn't like something. Week two, he played about half the snaps. And then after that, he was just flat-out benched. I, I want to say he played, I think it was maybe six defensive snaps the rest of the season, which is a, I mean, obviously it's a low number, especially low at a position like a defensive back, where you do rotate back there. So um, if you look at him, it was primarily a special teams role for him. Um, again, I, I think Blackman is the lead guy when you're talking about that that strong safety position. Um, and how you're penciling a depth chart here heading into training camp. But um, we'll see how it plays out. I mean, you know, he's still young, Cross. I mean, I don't even think he's turned 22 years old yet. Uh, You know, mentally they just felt like it was a totally different story with Rodney McLeod out there versus Nick Cross and felt like he wasn't playing near the athletic ability that he has and was thinking too much and all that. Gus Bradley saying that he feels like he saw some change from him. So when you talk year two jump, as you you mentioned, Jimmy, uh, he certainly will be a one to watch in that category. Also year two, Alec Pierce. I was at a chance to go to his camp a while back, and it was honestly pretty cool to see so many Alec Pierce jerseys in one uh, central spot that wasn't a Colts game, and they loved seeing him. And I didn't talk to him too much about you know football and things like that. And one of the things that he didn't talk about was 
training, getting work in with both Gardner Minshew and Anthony Richardson this offseason. And so when you look at what you want to see from him during camp, what are some things that you're hoping to see him do throughout this camp to maybe show that he is a guy who they can continue to, um, I don't want to say build around, but build with as a piece that you know could be part of this Anthony Richardson equation? Yeah, I think just bring more pitches to the arsenal. I mean, like, we know he's got the fastball. We know he's got the big play down the field. Now it's, you know, can you become a more of a complete route tree guy? I mm-hmm. think Pierce has been pretty honest himself and being like, you know, when I get to the top of my break, it's a little sloppy. And, you know, outside the numbers, he certainly can make plays. I mean, arguably the highlight of, of the season outside of that Kansas City game was, was probably beating Jacksonville at home and him and Matt Ryan putting that game on ice there late with that deep ball down the near sideline. I mean, he can make those plays, 50-50 balls in the air, and that's great for Anthony Richardson moving forward because we know that is such a strength of Richardson. But I think to ascend and to become what – there were some questions, and this was the question on him entering college – or excuse me, entering the NFL. It's, you know, he's kind of a one-trick pony. So, you know, developing more of that route tree, and honestly, I think it would be – you know, trying to tap into a little bit of what his position coach, Reggie Wayne, was so good at. <laughs> and it was at the top of the route, you didn't know what he was going to be doing. And his timing was so solid and, you know, really his technique was so sound. I think Pierce, at times, the athletic ability is great, but he's a little bit too reliant on that. Now, having said that, I think it's a decent problem to have because if you're going to be a receiver that catches one or two balls a game, boy, you might as well make him for 30 yards. And that's what, again, he, he can bring. I mean, he proved that in his rookie season. Um, so that's good news because it falls in line with Richardson's strengths. But at the same time, if you want to develop rapport with a young quarterback, it's it's trustworthy. It's being in the places that your quarterback knows that you're going to be. And I think those are some areas where he can grow and just more of that underneath stuff. Well, I like that approach, you know, just be Reggie Wayne. You know what I mean? Like, <laughs> that's just good advice from KB right there. <laughs> no, I'm joking. Future Hall of Famer. That's so easy. I mean, I, you get it on a motivational poster, I'm sure. There's, there's a way to, way to find that in the I'm sure Reggie would approve. <laughs> <laughs> Kevin Bowen with us, the fans very own. You can follow him on Twitter at KBowen1070. KB, I know I'm putting the cart before the horse a little bit here, but so often over the last couple of seasons, we've talked about the need and the desire particularly if you're a playoff team, of having some type of security with who is the second name on the depth chart at the quarterback position. And I ask it that way because it's been clear over the last couple of seasons for Gardner Minshew that he believes that he can still be a starter in this league and he wants to continue to chase that dream. He's also 27 years old. And I know this is only a one-year deal, but he has a relationship with Shane Steichen dating back to last year. And I know he he likes Shane Steichen. And by all accounts, he appears to be pretty gracious if it is Anthony Richardson that wins this starting job. For Minshew, just as the player, and you look at his arc, if he doesn't get the nod as the starter here, and it's Richardson's team from Jump Street, what does it hold for him? And what are the chances that you see guys all the time that reach a point in their career where they want to find a system they like with people they like that Minshew would be a, a backup piece in Indy for his career? Hmm. Yeah, I, I, I think it's a great question. Um, I wouldn't rule it out. I mean, obviously his relationship with Shane Steichen is a big reason why he's here. Um, I mean, to me, it's, you know, are you Jacoby Brissett? You know, are you this guy that, yes, you know, Minshew was picked three rounds later 
than Jacoby, but are you this guy that can carve out a, I mean, Jacoby's got to be approaching what year seven, year eight in the league. You know, are, are you getting to that point where you can be a decade long backup for you in the NFL? Um, I mean, that sounds pretty good as a six-round pick. I'm sure there's an element of a loser mentality in that, in that you want to start and you want to reach the pinnacle of your position, but you also got to live in a dose of reality and realize there's a whole lot of six-round quarterbacks that, that don't even sniff. I mean, hell, Sam Ellinger you know, would, would probably be one of them, of a guy that would love to be you know, Gardner Minshew here moving forward. So, uh, yes, to your point, it is a one-year deal. Um, you know, if you look at the, I'm trying to think of the backups in the, in the luck era, you had Drew Stanton that, that first year, and then you had Matt Hasselbeck for those next couple of seasons, and then that's when it got into a little bit more of a revolving door once you know Hasselbeck got hurt and you brought Brissett in and all of those things. So uh, that, that, that sounds good to me. Um, you know, Minshew and Richardson, again, all we're doing is reading tea leaves from right. on-field practices, but they appear to be you know, close, and I know they obviously have trained together in the offseason. No, we talked about that that storyline a bit. So, yeah, I I don't look at Minshew and ever think a team's going to sign him in March and say, here's the keys to the franchise. He might find another situation like Indy where he kind of likes that in, in, in a year or two. It's like, okay, we've got the young unknown. We don't know if he's going to be ready. So maybe you come here and start for eight games. Uh, maybe you don't, but at least there is that chance here. Whereas you would hope if you're a Colts fan in two to three years, Richardson's the unquestioned starter and there's no even possibility for Minshew to be doing anything like that. And I think his contract kind of indicates this sort of thing we're talking about, Jimmy. And I don't, I don't have it in front of me, but if I'm not mistaken, I want to say he's due anywhere between like $3 million and $7 million. I mean, they pretty much said to him like, hey, man, we're going to draft somebody here in a month and he probably will play at some point as a rookie, but we're not 100% sure. So here's a ton of playing time incentives with this deal, and we'll just see how it plays out. Yeah, I know he has a fully guaranteed deal because I wanted to – If and I knew it wasn't going to happen. If the Colts had pulled the trigger on Lamar Jackson, I was going to tweet out that the Colts have given out two fully guaranteed contracts to quarterbacks this offseason just to mess with the fans and be <laughs> technically right. But, uh, KB, when you look at – this division as a whole, obviously you would assume that Jacksonville is going to be at the top. They're going to probably win the division if things go right down there in Jacksonville. But is it out of the realm of possibility for the Colts to contend and be in like that second spot when it comes to the, how the division shakes out? Because I'm not sure about the – we talk about the Colts looking for their identity, trying to start a new era, but I'm not sure about the errors that are going on in Houston and Tennessee right now. No, I think it's a great point. Yeah, I mean, they're having the same conversations we are, just about different names. And, and, and Tennessee, you might argue, they're having a really confusing conversation given <laughs> the makeup of a Derrick Henry and then what exactly do you have in Malik Willis and Will Levis and how much money Ryan Tannehill is still making. Houston is probably the more like, okay, first-year head coach and, and they drafted a young quarterback, et cetera, et cetera. But, yeah, I mean, this division, I, I mean, I, I know I'm not supposed to say it, but, you know, Tennessee – injuries absolutely decimated them last year. Like, I thought the Harold Landry torn ACL, to me, that was almost kind of like the nail in the coffin of, like, they're not running away with this division yeah. at all. And obviously they did not. They fell apart in the last two months, and they lost the division by a game to, to Jacksonville. Well, if you look at the AFC South, I mean, if Trevor Lawrence were to tear his ACL in September, who's winning this division? Yeah. 
I mean, I I, I, I don't know. I, I don't know the answer. And, and judging by, I, I don't know, your guys' pauses, maybe you were like, wait, is Kevin going to say anything here? And I didn't know it was rhetorical because I was thinking to myself, if he tears his yell, it's, it's like it's a disaster down there. I, like. I didn't have an answer because all I saw was first round playoff exit. So that's that's why, why I didn't have a clear. <laughs> well, yeah. Every AFC South team would be in the first round playoff exit. But again, who is the, who's the division favorite? Is, is it Jacksonville with, I don't know, CJ Beathard, whoever their backup is? is Tennessee still riding. I think Jim Irsay uh, bangs the gavel and he's like, you know what? All that rebuilding talk, Lombardi, here we come now. I'm joking. But I don't know. I mean, do the Colts have an O-line revival and Jonathan Taylor all of a sudden they win eight games or nine games and that wins the division? Again, these are all you know topics that, frankly, I don't think are as important as Anthony Richardson's development, but they are very relevant in the sense of like you do play games they are wins and losses that are the end of those games and occasionally ties. Those do matter for a whole lot of people and obviously fans as well. Um, so I, 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 to answer your question, I don't know who is second in this division. Um, I, I tend to think Tennessee just always somehow ends up in a position. But again, I say that with a whole lot of lack of confidence in it. Um, so I would, I would guess the division order is Jacksonville, Tennessee, Indy, Houston, but it would not stun me if the Colts finished second in this division. The reason why I ask that is because I always picture Jim Irsay just like throwing a chair or something whenever they lose to Tennessee or not being able to win the season opener. So I'm just picturing in my mind, like, what happens if they don't win some of these games they're probably supposed to? Because to me on paper, the Colts are good enough to, you know, get a game off Tennessee. They're good enough to – Potentially, obviously, I think they should beat Houston this year at least once. And so I'm just curious to see how it plays out. We can always talk about this stuff now, but Sundays get weird sometimes, man, because even that last game against Houston last year where the Colts fans rejoiced because it resulted in a higher draft pick, that had to be like the nail in the coffin of such a weird season because I was thinking to myself, how did this happen? What is this? And I could just picture um, Jim Irsay feeling some type of way about how it all ended. But um, I guess I'll pass the buck to, J- to Jimmy now. I just wanted to get your thoughts on that because it's so well, fascinating to me. I, I, yeah, if you don't mind, I'll, I will chime in. I, first off, I think Sundays get weird is one of the truest statements I, I, I've ever heard. <laughs> so I think that's a great, great statement. And, you know, when you talk about the division and Irsay's, you know, whatever, fuming mindset towards the AFC South, Think about this, guys. The Colts won one game in the AFC South last year. One game in that bleeping division. Like, I mean, you imagine the dominance that the Colts have had in the AFC South and for Jim Irsay to have to watch that they won one game. On the in last the play, where, basically. <laughs> where, you know, Houston drafted wherever they drafted and Tennessee was right there. And it's not like, let's not act like Jacksonville went 13 and 4 last year. I mean, they, they had to have the hottest two months in the world. And that was the only win was beating Jacksonville right. at, at home. So it, it is, um, it, it's crazy how this division has absolutely just flipped, taken a total 180 from how the Colts used to handle it to how they currently are, are, are looked at. And now, in those respective cities, it used to be, I think, the biggest game on the schedule and maybe the most feared game on the schedule. And now all those teams are like, Jacksonville's like, oh my gosh, they haven't won here in a decade. <laughs> Tennessee's like, I think we won, you know, Vrabel's won what, six in a row, something like that against the Colts. Yeah. In Houston, it's just kind of like, all right, which team sucks least? <laughs> Kevin Bowen with us. You can follow him on Twitter at KBowen1070. You obviously can't plan for injuries to happen, but Kevin, you mentioned what if a doomsday scenario for Jacksonville happens and something happens to Trevor Lawrence and then the division's up for grabs. 
does that mean that I am wrong or incorrect in my thought that if Richardson looks ready, like not that he's better than Minshew, but he looks ready, and the gap between Minshew and Richardson is nothing more than what you would expect from a veteran versus a rookie quarterback. If that's all it is, and maybe Minshew might win you one or two games more, but Richardson's ready for the moment, I say go with Richardson. If it's clear that he is ready from a front office slash coaching staff standpoint, I don't care about one or two more games. I want development to happen right away because I think he's ready. Is that the right pathway to have? Am I am I wrong in that regard to think if it's not a big separation between the two that let's follow what Jim Irsay said on the Pat McAfee show and go get the man reps? You, you, you couldn't be more right. I think you're 1,000% correct on that, to be totally honest with you. Uh, yeah, it, it's unquestionably exactly how you have to look at the, the, the season. And again, I know that's a bit of a loser mentality with it, but it's the reality that you have to live in. You know, find me the first Colts fan that's upset about a 3-13 1998 Colts season. You know, yeah, you, you, you're you're going to live with some some growing pains, but you know Peyton Manning throwing the most interceptions in NFL history for for any rookie quarterback, it proved to be unbelievable baptism by fire for him. So, um, if there's anybody, and I get it, coaches are going to want to win games, but there's if there's anybody that you know late August. If they're all in a meeting together and they're like, all right, you know, who wants to start Minshew week one? And, you know, you've got whatever, Jim Bob Cooter, or, you know, insert your, you know, <laughs> assistant coach name that raised sure. his hand in the back. Like, guys, I think we got to start Gardner. I think we can win seven games with Gardner. And with Anthony, I don't think we can win more than five. And, sorry, Jim Bob. And I know it goes on your coaching resume, but it's not about that. Like, you, you've got to get outside of that thinking and, and I thought Ursay's quote to McAfee was really spot on, to be honest with you. I mean, I nodded my head at virtually every comment within that quote, which certainly is not something I often do with Ursay comments, but <laughs> especially when he said the, you know, yeah, you might win a game or two, you know, extra, or I forget the exact phrasing with Gardner early on, but he's got to play, referencing, of course, Anthony. That's what this season is all about. You know, I think maybe it was a couple of years ago now, but there was a Pacers season a few years back where to me you had to get out of the wins and losses mindset. And the biggest question for that team entering the season was, is Miles Turner and DeMontis Sabonis a real life combination that you can work with moving forward? Like that, that was the big question that year for the Pacers. Obviously they found an answer to that. And that the fact that they found an answer and they acted on that answer proved to be one of those pivotal points the franchise has had certainly in the last decade and we'll see if it becomes even greater with getting Halliburton etc that's the same thing with the Colts this season the biggest question is does Anthony Richardson take a step forward and are you at a point heading to 2024 where you continue to feel good about it because god forbid it goes really bad one way or the other in terms of whether it's Minshew or it's Richardson you're going to have potentially some generational quarterbacks in next year's draft, and you're going to have to make a decision on that. Again, I know it's not what anyone wants to think about, but that is just the reality of how this thing is going to be viewed with how next year's draft, by all indications, is with Caleb Williams out of USC and potentially Drake May out of North Carolina. Don't forget Marvin Harrison Jr. is still being in that (laughs) top three range. Last one from me, KB. As I'm sure you saw the video, played some basketball with Anthony Richardson this week. So the next time I run into him on the court, can I just text you? Because I, need, I needed some height. I was little. I was lacking in the height department. So, you know, would you be willing to come, you know, take a charge or two or, or contest a shot? 
You know, it, I, I almost texted you when I saw you tweet out that video and obviously just the angle that you were filming it from. I thought for a split second that literally you were going to step in and take a charge. <laughs> I was like, this might be the most greatest, the greatest Indiana state of Indiana basketball video of all time. And the kid from Romeoville is going to literally have a <laughs> educational video for every high school coach around the state and how to take a proper charge here. Uh, so I don't know why I thought that. It's probably because I've lived in the state my entire life there. But nonetheless, uh, that was six four two thirty coming at you pretty fast there. So I, I don't know if I would have. It, it would have looked like maybe Ben Shepard trying to fight with Chet Holmgren the other night, and that's honestly a slap in the face of Ben Shepard that I would even compare myself to. James, it could have been a TikTok POV for you. It could have been Man. taking a charge. Yeah, uh, I'm telling you, I am player. not that hooserized just yet. No charges from me. I have good insurance. But I'm not trying to use it on that. So, uh, KB, appreciate your insight, man, and we'll talk to you soon. Boys, have a great weekend. I've always enjoyed, or I have enjoyed, these Friday combos over the last few weeks. So uh, hopefully we can keep going. Appreciate you, Kev. See you guys. That is Kevin Bowen, the fan's very own. You hear him 7 to 10 a.m. weekdays right here on 93.5107.5. The fan, Kevin Bowen and Jay Query on Kevin and Query. Still to come, we got some bets to hand out, but we want to dive a little bit deeper when we return into the drama that's going to unfold potentially over the next 48 hours or so in the countdown to a big deadline in the NFL this coming Monday. We'll get into that when we come back on the Fan Midday Show. Whether it's audiobooks or all-time greatest hits, long live listening to your favorites. Learn more about Kaskali Ribocyclob 200 milligrams at KISQALI.com and talk to your doctor to see if Kaskali is right for you. Jimmy Cook and James Boyd here in the DriveHuber.com studios. Thanks for hanging with us on a Friday. Baseball is back. We'll have some bets for you in that regard. We haven't passed the rock his way yet, so if you want to jump on the mic, you can, or you can save it for next segment. But, Nathaniel, I would like some baseball bets from you or, or some type of bets for you for the weekend because that's general the role that we give a hard time to for Eddie to give us some type of bet. So like something from you today, if possible. Difference is I'll give you some winning bets. Hey, hey there Ooh, it is. I like that. <laughs> Nathaniel with all the, the smoke. I like that. Yep. You know what? I'm an instigator, so I'm going you know, to make Eddie. If you're, you're listening. Cl- you're going to clip that off. Oh, yeah. I got to send it to him. Let him know. Like, hey, he coming for your spot, man. <laughs> I, I admire the confidence, and I would expect nothing less in general out of the gate from one Nathaniel Finch. And we'll have those bets for you next segment. But the drama continues to unfold in the National Football League with where running backs are and how they're valued with teams. And another big deadline that is coming up for teams that are looking for extensions on the franchise tag deadline and or not signing I beg your pardon that franchise tag deadline without penalties or without anything like that is July 17th which is Monday and two star running backs this has been in a couple different places ESPN.com and CBS Sports headlining that list Saquon Barkley and Josh Jacobs is are they going to put pen to paper and are they going to report to camp and again you and I are in agreement on this James we've learned it from Le'Veon Bell what, five years ago, it's a losing battle trying to fight the tag. I, I, get, I understand the principal aspect of it that you feel like it is a, a broken system for players where the teams have all the power and the control from the NFL standpoint of if they don't like the terms of the agreement or if they just don't want to have a long-term contract out there, they place the franchise tag on you. They can deal with one player every year and you don't feel valued as a key piece for your team. 
Josh Jacobs, I love him as a player, but like, you know, the Raiders are the Raiders. What are you going to do? Like the fact that they're involved in some type of drama heading into a season is not at all surprising whatsoever. They signed a quarterback whose foot wasn't right. I mean, Raiders. Man, I tell you what, I continue to say this every year, and I know it's not in the cards this year for Colts fans, but anytime you have an opportunity for your team to be out in Las Vegas – like that 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 is now a bucket list item for me of if my team is going to be out there in Las Vegas I want to make a trip of it I want to I want to enjoy the Vegas trip I don't want to see my team involved in whatever Sunday night Monday night or a, just a Sunday day game I digress so the point is with these running backs for this exercise with Barkley and Jacobs if they don't sign the tag and they don't report to camp from the player standpoint what are you seeing with this is it just a hey, I'm glad you're taking a stance with this, but we know you're going to end up reporting for week one anyway, or is it they're really going to try to fight the system once again? I'm not sure. I think that Saquon is good enough to maybe try to use some of his leverage, but even then, I just don't believe that he or Josh Jacobs has enough. And I'm saying that because if it was a pretty good running back, then maybe you're like, eh, okay, like you'll be there. Saquon makes enough money like in endorsements and things to the point where it's like, would he really risk it? But even then, I just can't see him not doing the inevitable, which would be showing up and reporting. And even if you're disgruntled, you're upset, whatever the case may be, this is something that would have to be resolved realistically through the CBA where, you know, you go through the next negotiations and you get this sorted out and even then I would be shocked I think there we're going to be old and gray Jimmy before <laughs> we ever see franchise tags disappear from the NFL never because be, I don't think it'll ever happen I mean yeah it's just it, it, they have that power and it's they're, they're going to be like fighting on you know they say when hell freezes over they'll be fighting on ice <laughs> trying to like make sure, <laughs> sure that they never give franchise tags you know back or or rescind that from the players so i want to reclarify the stakes cuz i was right the first time that i, I doubled back incorrectly mm-hmm. on it so the 4 p.m. deadline on monday 4 p.m. eastern time is the ability even with the tag in place it's the last opportunity for teams and players to negotiate a long-term deal Once that's done, Barkley is not eligible to be re-signed until after the 2023 campaign. So the ball is basically in the Giants' court of, are we going to try to retain you one last time on a real long-term deal or a multi-year deal? Or is it, now we're good, there's the tag, report when you're ready. But either way... That deadline's 4 p.m. Monday. You're going to be here. Yeah, exactly. I mean, it just just (laughs) does... Like, I... Rewind the clocks back five years. I admired what Le'Veon Bell tried to do because it, it is a system where if you're pro team or if you were a Steelers fan, you probably didn't like it. It's like, come on, man, just report. And I, and I get that. But as a player, you need to look after your own. You feel like I'm being taken advantage of by the franchise. Right. I'm going to try to fight this. And again, I, I admired him for taking that leap, but you saw what the end result was, which was not right. a win for Le'Veon Bell. And at the time, it really it was a huge decision, obviously, mm-hmm. but it wasn't, in my opinion, it wasn't as bad of a decision as it would be right now because in the years since then, running backs haven't really gained ground in this argument, sure. you know, in this leverage play. So I think you use his experience and maybe look at yourself and you have to just kind of swallow your pride and be like, hey, I'll get this guaranteed money on the franchise tag and it's just what it is. Like, 
you can be mad, you can be disgruntled. And I think for Josh Jacobs, he's probably even more mad because you're not even joining a good team. You're joining a team that could be okay in theory. Like, they're not contending for anything. But I think the Giants feel like, okay, we're moving in the right direction. We got a young quarterback. We got these pieces around us. We can add Saquon to the mix. We're a good team. Whereas Josh Jacobs is like, man, you're going to franchise tag me with a team that isn't even good where that's a whole another level of maybe disrespect that he feels. But at the end of the day, what are you willing to risk? And it's either play on this franchise tag for this money or risk losing all of it. And so you feel like you're not getting the money that you deserve versus not getting any money at all if you don't report. And so I think that's a lose-lose situation. And again, it's one where you maybe aren't happy about it, but perhaps you have to go back to – realizing how much money you've already made um what you can make off the field and just your pure love of the game and maybe some guys on the team that you really respect and want to be there for because from a money perspective a business perspective you're not going to be satisfied you're not going to be happy with the outcome if you don't get an extension done by monday the unique thing about the Le'Veon bell scenario also was it was the hardball franchise move this was not a first time franchise tag this was multiple years of being the guy that gets the franchise tag from your team to the point that he's like, no, I'm done with it. I want long-term security. And again, it it didn't work out from that year. I know he winds up in New York and, and you know, it was a, at the time, you can find it here on SpotRack, but a four-year, $52 million deal. He only winds up in New York for two seasons and then bounces around the league. Was never really the same player again. And it, it's just, it comes to a point where I don't feel like there should be as heavy level friction for the first time tag usage. But if you get down to, again, a, a second-year scenario like Le'Veon Bell did where it's like, okay, I proved it again for you. Where is the reward? Where is the loyalty with this? That's not the path that Jonathan Taylor's on. It's not really the path Saquon's on right now. But it does make it interesting of if you're a team that is like the Colts where you have a running back best if used by date almost on your team of <laughs> yeah. when do we need to get a contract extension done that is beneficial for us. You don't want to see what's playing out right now with Saquon Barkley happen next year. And I know that, okay, maybe the Colts wouldn't have the same level of headline coverage because it's New York versus Indianapolis. But let's not forget, especially if the scenario you pointed out earlier this week, James, Jonathan Taylor winds up not getting an extension playing out this year and has a 2021 like season. He's already proved one year in his career he can captivate the national audience. Like that becomes a big national story yeah. of star running back at the position at that point is only twenty five years old, wants an extension and doesn't yeah. get it if that's how it plays out. And it would be different if it was similar to like the NBA where they have like offer sheets where another team could offer sure. you and force you to pay Restricted more free agency. or let you or let you go. Like it just that's yeah. not a thing in the NFL. Like there's no other team that could swoop in and say, "All right, Saquon, like New York doesn't want to pay you that much, but we'll pay you." So again, there's just no out in my mind. And I had a conversation with Randy Mueller at the Athletic, the former um, GM, and he was saying, you know, there's no pathway out. And he was talking about this when I discussed Lamar Jackson with him before he ended up going back to the Ravens. It was like, you're never going to be free of that contract. Mm -hmm. Very rarely are you, and especially if you're a really good player early on. It's always like a guy like Kirk Cousins, he was able to get some leverage with his play because he wasn't coming in as this guy who was looked at as, 
you know, the franchise dude. And so, again, um, when you look at some of the people who are able to get fully guaranteed deals, it's usually because they played their deal out and they weren't a superstar or a big-time star at their position. And so um, I feel for them, but this is something that is going to be an uphill battle that I think that they'll inevitably lose. I feel like it's, I don't know, the Greek uh, story, but like the guy pushing the big old ball up the hill. Like you're just – perpetually doing that trying to fight this because at some point it's going to roll down on top of you because that's how the NFL is structured and that's how your position has kind of trended the last few years. The other aspect of this to remember when Le'Veon Bell refused to sign the franchise tag again this back in 2018 he lost 14 million dollars 14 and a half million dollars for the 2018 season is what he wound up forfeiting and you'd think okay but he eventually signs a four-year 52 million dollar deal with the Jets He's there for a season and a half, and he makes total earnings $27 million over two seasons with New York, and then again, was never the same player. Now, another aspect with that is the Steelers were in a different realm of existence than what the Colts are at right now. Yeah, And even where the Giants were at right now, because say what you will about Daniel Jones, just from a star power standpoint he's not Ben Roethlisberger right no. like the Steelers were on a different stratosphere right, of right. feeling like they're they're a, they're a contender or still being within right. a championship window versus where the Colts are right now you're not having to penny pinch as much in that regard and that's been your biggest strong point for why you think a deal ultimately gets done is because they're not in a situation where they are handcuffed to the cap and don't have flexibility like the Le'Veon Bell situation, like kind of what the Giants are dealing with a little bit right now as they try to map out all the money they just paid to Daniel Jones. Exactly, and I think that's, again, I think Anthony Richards being on a rookie deal helps Jonathan Taylor, but not to the point where he can reset the running back market. I think that he can get paid, but again, there's going to have to be some compromise on both sides for this to happen and again they're not up against that Monday deadline like the other two running backs are because again as a reminder JT still has one year left on his rookie deal before he goes into the uh, contract negotiations and things like that or at least goes into a potential franchise tag scenario so we'll see how it plays out but I do think like KB said earlier we're probably going to have to wait and see how things shake out with Saquon with Josh Jacobs before JT is resolved. We're going to take our final break here on the Fan Midday Show. When we return, we'll have some bets to close the week out right. Don't go anywhere. Whether it's audiobooks or all-time greatest hits, long live listening to your favorites. Learn more about Kaskali Ribocyclob 200 milligrams at KISQALI.com and talk to your doctor to see if Kaskali is right for you. Final time on a Friday. Here on the Fan Midday Show, Jimmy Cook, James Boyd, Nathaniel Finch with us in the DriveHubor.com studios. We got through the darkness that was the darkest day <laughs> I can see of the, the sports calendar. We've seen the light. Baseball is back. Let's get to some bets. The Jay Cook Plays of the Day. This is me, all right? I'm not a f- athlete. This is my f- way. This is how I win. Today's Plays of the Day. We're going to take the Cincinnati Reds to one of the money line over the Milwaukee Brewers. They were kind to us in the first half, so we're going to start things off with an upset as well. 
plus 120 juice here. Give me the Miami Marlins over the Baltimore Orioles. And then I don't like opening the baseball resumption with a minus 200 play. So we're just going to say a little prayer and say that the offense finally returns in New York, though Aaron Judge is yet to be found because he's still hurt. Lay one and a half on the run line tonight on the New York Yankees against the Colorado Rockies. Uh, we're still in the air for our Wimbledon bet, so so stay locked in with that if you played that parlay. Yesterday, you got one leg of it with Djokovic. Nathaniel, what entices you over these next couple of days or just today? Well, let me tell you, I like doing some money line bets and, you know, no, I mean, no one's going to take us straight on the Braves minus 265, but, but Braves are a lock tonight. It's Morton against Kopech and the White Sox in Atlanta. All right. I think that the Rays are a lock tonight against a guy who's 0 for 2 with Kansas City and has a 70 RA. They're minus 265. And then the Mariners at minus 180, Luis Castillo. I like that one Loves him in Seattle against Detroit. You put the three of those bad boys together, it's about about plus 200. I like that. Okay, so we're breaking out a parlay tonight of Mariners, Braves, and Rays. That from Nathaniel Finch. James, I know you stay away from the gambling waters, but I'll ask you this because I know basketball and football take center stage for you. Having got through the darkest day of the sports year, <laughs> will there be any baseball in James Boyd's life this evening? Oh, not at all. Okay, not I don't at think all. So. Like, I, you will not catch me watching baseball <laughs> until it is the postseason. I will say this though. WNBA three-point contest, Kelsey Mitchell, That's right. Indiana Fever That's right. guard is in that. Jackie Young for Las Vegas Aces, a Princeton, Indiana native. She's also in the contest. They have the All-Star game on Saturday, tomorrow. You can watch that and check out Aja. I'm not I'm not, I'm not sorry. Aaliyah Boston. I'm sorry, mm-hmm. I'll get my names mixed up. Aaliyah Boston, Kelsey Mitchell on opposite teams in the All-Star game. You can check them out and see uh, what's going on with them. But that's about it for me. I will watch the three-point contest before I watch baseball. Can't get in on any <laughs> of the real individual bets there that James outlined for WNBA All-Star. But you can look at the All-Star game itself and you can look as well at the Skills Challenge if you're just in that on DraftKings Sportsbook. Special thank to Brendan Nunez, Matt Issa, and Kevin Bowen. Podcast will be up 1075thefan.com or wherever you get your podcast. Just search the Fan Midday Show. We're going to have you back in here next Thursday and fi- Friday, correct? Yes, sir. I'll be there. Looking forward to that. It'll be myself and Brian No to open the week Monday and Tuesday. Recapping all things Summer League and looking ahead on the countdown to training camp. Have a wonderful weekend. Keep it locked on to 93.51075 The Fan. The Ride with JMV is next. Whether it's audiobooks or all-time greatest hits, long live listening to your favorites. Learn more about Kaskali Ribocyclob 200 milligrams at KISQALI.com and talk to your doctor to see if Kaskali is right for you.